Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. You can find me on Facebook at Galen Trombley, on Instagram at Galen Trombley, and on YouTube at Galen Trombley. Spelling G-A-E-L-A-N-T-R-O-M-B-L-E-Y. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. Welcome to episode 75 of the Galen Trombley Show. I have John Maholland here um, in studio. Um, John has been working on me for, I think, six years now, which at time flies, and I know he's been a long time uh, practitioner in chiropractic and a, and a bunch of other stuff. He's a, an interesting guy and, and has done quite a bit. I have a, I have your, uh, I got a lot of stuff here. I was kind of going <laughs> through, but I'll let you kind of expand on that. But John, welcome. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Um, so, uh, John, for anybody that does not know you, just give them a quick rundown, kind of where you came from. How'd you get, how'd you get to 2020, John Mahalan? Jeez, I'm old, man. That's a long story. <laughs> um, you know, a quick story, born born here. I'm a local guy. I was uh, born in Saranac Lake, grew up in Elizabethtown until I was about seven, I think, and then moved to Plattsburgh. And I've been a city kid ever since. Graduated PHS, Plattsburgh High School in 92, and then uh, went on to Ithaca College, graduated, ran track and field down at Ithaca for four years, and then ended up in a, I don't know, long story, ended up in chiropractic school. Um for four years after after undergrad and eventually you know traveled around a little bit uh worked as an associate doc down on long island for a year or two and then uh decided to open my own just small town practice back in elizabethtown originally back in 2002 added a second location in plattsburgh uh, several years after that um and after some kind of weird traveling I've, i've been here ever since so when do you want to get into chiropractic? Like, was that kind of like in college that interests you? No. Um, you know, a lot of chiropractors seem to be um, a family business. You know, you see, I went to school with a, a ton of guys and girls that were, their parents were chiropractors or one of them. And I really never had that magical story. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I was very confused. I was an exercise science major at Ithaca. Always a sports guy. That was me. I was just the jock, you know, played every sport, three seasons through, you know, uh, at PHS and, um, you know, ran track, like I said, through, through Ithaca for four years and always just kind of a jock, but, um, was really torn, um, really enjoyed the exercise science, knew I wanted to do something probably halfway through undergrad in healthcare, but wasn't sure whether it was gonna be PT medical school, um, really all over the board. And, and what kind of changed me, I really didn't decide until I want to say my senior year when applications were basically due, um, I actually went and talked to a couple of primary care docs in town that I knew um, and a couple of chiropractors that I knew and just kind of spent a couple hours, a couple of them I think I spent most of the day with just shadowing them, kind of saw what the day-to-day life was like. And that's kind of when I made the decision. Um, again, maybe it was dumb luck. Um, the primary care docs I followed were um, not super happy with how their practices were taking place for a lot of different reasons um you know pharmaceutical companies they they they, the similar complaint was they spent a lot of their day writing scripts um now i'm not generalizing that good or bad it was more their hands were being forced in a way um and that they didn't seem super happy to be honest with you um the chiropractors were a little different they seemed a little more 
happy-go-lucky, probably maybe a few more demands too. We don't have, we can't prescribe in New York, so we don't have a lot of those pressures mm-hmm. of writing scripts and things like that. But more so, which clicked to me was working with their hands, that they were kind of the best of both worlds. You know, you had a little bit of some physical therapy stuff, a little bit of the chiropractic, but just getting your hands on people and working on them and seeing an improvement and how their pain and how they were functioning. A lot of times, even in that first or second visit, um, seemed rewarding to me just watching them work on people. And it turns out, you know, that's been a, a pretty big selling point for me over the years. You know, not that after this will be my 20th year of practice, believe it or not. And not that you certainly don't get burned out at times and, and have your frustrations, but um, I think working on people, people coming in my office, partly because of the way I've sculpted my reputation as far as what I'm good at and who I work best with, a lot of the people that come in my office want to get better. And that's the key, you know, is that they're just looking for advice. They just want to be told what to do so they can keep running, keep lifting. Um, you know, and my older patients, they want to be able to do their yard work and lift up their grandkids and all that. And they're willing to do whatever I tell them. They just need a semi-educated brain, which sometimes I can be, um, depending on the topic, uh, to kind of guide them in the right direction. So that that's that's appealing to me. Did, um, so that's... Yeah, so that's one of the things with ch- chiropractic. And a lot, of, a lot of places, if you go and they tell you, okay, you need to do one, two, and three of yeah. these little exercises or like going to uh, uh, like physical therapy and they tell you to mm-hmm. do the bands or whatever. Yep. Um, so you've had good success with people following. You know, and I know it's not everybody because it, be, right. in a perfect world it would be, but do you find that, you know, obviously the ones that do follow what you're saying yeah. get better because, I mean, it's, it's a Most proven. Most of the time. Yeah, yeah, it's a proven kind of, uh, you know, trial and error over years and years and studies and stuff that that stuff works. But, um, have you had a hard time dealing with that with clients taking kind of going home and doing the homework? Yes. Yeah. So it's still, I still run into that problem a lot. Um, part of that, uh, and I'll be honest, part of that is sometimes the, the chiropractor, the therapist fault is that they just overwhelm their patients with too many exercises, too many recommendations. I mean, I've had I've had people come to me where I said, you know, next visit, bring in what your previous chiropractor or previous physical therapist told you to do. Just, I want to see what exercises. And they bring in like a sheet that, you know, even if you worked quick, it would take you 30, 45 minutes to work through. And they're supposed to do that five, six, seven days a week. Mm -hmm. It's just not going to happen. And so what I've kind of, and I, same, I was probably doing the same thing the first few years of practice and just over experience. I've learned one or two things a visit. You know, if they're super motivated, you know, real athletic and, and are, are geared, maybe two or three different things to kind of work on. Yeah. I want you to foam roll this. I want you to do this strengthening move. And I want you to kind of pay attention to this thing at work, you know, that might be contributing to your pain. Mm-hmm. But typically one or two is is the most. And if you don't overwhelm them and you make the exercises super easy to do where they don't need to necessarily lay on the floor all the time, they don't need special equipment. You can give them something simple to do that they can do anywhere um, they tend to be more compliant, but like you said, there's still a certain percentage that I find extremely frustrating when I do everything right, keep it simple and they still refuse that. Those are the ones I still struggle with. Well, I think it was like when I used to go, well, I forgot what I, I think I went originally for my shoulder, which got better really fast. And yeah. then I've just been going for like neck and, and yeah. more just alignment. But you always told me like the neck thing was just that like tongue. Yeah. tuck the chin. I think that's really the only thing you've ever given me for my neck. And that's the only thing I need. Like yes. if I do it, it works. Yep. And I know the times when I do do it or don't do it. Um, and, and I always go in, I'm like, I didn't stretch this time. Like I've been getting out of stretching or there's sometimes where I go into a very big 
um, stretch of time where I'm, I'm mobi- mobilizing and yep. I feel a million times better. But yeah, it's just a self-care. Because usually I want to go into you saying I feel great yeah. and have you just work on me. And I'm like, I feel even better. And then yeah. I'm good to go. It's it's tough, but that's exactly right. So so what you were calling with these, we call neck retractions or cervical spine retractions, chin tucks. Sometimes you hear them called. And it's just a simple drill to undo the constant damage most of us do sitting all day with our sh- you know shoulders shrugged shoulders shrugged heads kind of jutted forward over the you know over the computer mm-hmm. and what is an exercise you can do every hour or two for a few seconds to kind of just retrain your body to keep that head over the shoulder so yeah perfect example yeah so i was i was reading a couple of these things so so to kind of get into the fun stuff i guess and then we'll go into a bunch of other things so in your profession you've worked I'm just going to do a couple things. You've worked with the New Zealand team at the 2012 Summer Olympics. You've worked with Team USA Track and Field, Team USA Bobsled and Skeleton, um, the Paralympics, um, the Italian uh, men's skeleton team. I think that's kind of... Yeah. Yeah. And then... So I guess talk about your... Because then I read this article, which I think I read back in the day when you had it. Oh, yeah. We did some some digging because I knew some stuff. I wanted to get the the dates and times right. So (laughs) tell tell us your experience at the Olympics. Because this one's with you at the opening ceremonies. Yeah. So I guess kind of show the involvement or tell the involvement of all your Olympic experience. So, you know, it all started... I mean, I guess I have to go back a little bit. Um, I kind of grew up in an Olympic family like I've always just been super pumped about the Olympics just as a fan even as a kid um, my mother and father were involved in bobsledding um, in the 60s and early 70s um, so I kind of grew up they were into the Olympics you know we were in Lake Placid walking around during the the Miracle on Ice game uh, when I was a little kid um, so always pumped about the Olympics so a few years into practice in Elizabethtown um, I had built up a decent reputation as just being a, a, a good guy. Um, I referred people out when necessary and developed a pretty good reputation with a few of the orthopedists in town. And long story short, I was over in Lake Placid one day and I had become kind of friendly over the phone with Dr. Byrne, one of the orthopedic surgeons over at Lake Placid Sports Medicine. And I said, I'm going to swing in and say hello. I knew he had officer. And I said, hey, just never really met you face to face. I've sent, we've shared a lot of patients just saying hello. And he said, uh, yeah, Johnny, because I've heard good things about you because I got, I got a suggestion for you. Would you be interested in coming up to the Olympic Training Center occasionally in Lake Placid and working on some of the athletes? They've kind of demanded, um, you know, chiropractic care. And at the time, there was no chiropractor on staff at the Olympic Training Center, believe it or not. Now, this is going back to like 2005-ish, 2006. So yeah, not that long ago. And now they're just there at every training center. There's multiple, like out in Colorado Springs, the big ones. Um, Lake Placid has a full-time chiro on staff. But back then, they had nothing. They had their athletic trainers. They had a physical therapist, depending on who was, you know, staffed at the time. But athletes were specifically demanding that they wanted access to chiropractic care. And so... What started as just a dumb luck, saying hello to a doc and, and thanking him for the referrals became, um, you know, I'd be going up, I'd drive up here to Lake Placid, um, depending on the season, once a week, sometimes two or three times a month, in the winter more often, because there were more athletes there. Because Lake Placid's an interesting training center. It's it's not exclusively, but mainly winter sport athletes for obvious reasons with the bobsled track, the, the luge, the skeleton the ski jumps, the Nordic. Um, so I started getting my foot in the door and treating a lot of these winter sport athletes in Lake Placid. And I guess they liked the job I was doing after a, a year, year and a half. And so I started getting asked to 
travel with the bobsled team, bobsled and skeleton team. So basically they'd say, hey, we're going out for a camp in Calgary in October. Can you come out with us for a week and a half, two weeks and treat them? Um, that turned into, can you cover a couple of weeks in Europe uh, the next year? Can you do that? So that's why I started to really travel. And I did that for several years, worked a couple of world championships with them. Um, and then with Dr. Byrne, funny enough, uh, the two of us went out and were most of the, a good chunk of the medical staff for the 2010 Paralympic Games out in Vancouver. Oh, yeah. So I spent a m- month bouncing between Vancouver and Whistler treating all the Paralympic athletes. And I'll tell you, I, you know, I didn't have a ton of experience working with that group. Um, I mean, most of the team members I was working with on Nordic skiing were ex-military. These are guys that were, and girls, but mainly guys that had lost, you know, one of the guys won a bronze medal in biathlon, was a double amputee below the hip, was a uh, sniper, um, had a a car bomb go off in Afghanistan, blew both his legs off. Another guy was a paratrooper, uh, paralyzed from the chest down, um, rappelling out of a helicopter and fell. So these are the type, and it just blew you away because these athletes are on the same courses. Like I was assigned Nordic skiing. So every day I would go to their practices, to their races. I get to ski with them. Uh, And then we'd treat them in the afternoon. And then, you know, I'd treat anybody in the afternoon back at the training center. I'd be sitting there. These guys and girls are skiing the Nordic course. Nordic's cross country. Cross country. Yes. Thank you. Um, skiing the same course, you know, three weeks prior that Billy DeMong and a, and a bunch of these, you know, uh, yeah. able-bodied athlete athletes were, were hammering and these people are skiing in chairs. So in other words, yeah, just like, like with, it's a wheelchair with skis. So they're just pulling the same hills or tougher biomechanics, basically yes. or ergonomics or whatever. Well, it's the majority leg anyway. Yeah. And so these people, I had another girl just, uh, amputee below the shoulder. Um, you know, skiing with no poles. Uh, there were blind athletes that were that would literally have a guide skiing in front of them, with a speaker like a fanny pack speaker, barking out turns. Wow! And they were completely blinded. I mean, I you know, if anybody's ever cross country skied up at like Van Hovenberg, some of those like icy downhills in the woods are pretty terrifying with your eyes. Yeah. And I, I mean, you can imagine just putting blacked out goggles over and trusting your buddy in front of you to tell you, you know. Uh, a three turn, a seven turn to the right and, you know, not killing yourself. So wow. that was my first, but we got to walk in opening ceremonies there. It was like 70 something thousand people in the, in British Columbia and the big Vancouver dome. Um, and then it was just, I know a long story, but um, then it just became um, a bobsled connection reached out to me a couple years later, the year later, actually 2011 and said, Hey, I'm the strength coach now with the New Zealand track cycling team. These are the big guys. These are the ones that the sprinters that go on the velodrome indoors. Oh, yeah. yeah. That you see the the wooden banks, the huge bank turns, and just sprint, sprint. They're almost doing the track stands to try to psych each other out. And then they'll just hammer. And these guys will be doing, you know, 45, 50 miles an hour on a bike. Um, And he goes, hey, we're going to be in Pennsylvania for the summer. I'd love, I love what you did with some of my skeleton athletes. Would you be willing to drive down for a week and just look at some of the boys? See if you have any suggestions, work on them. And I did, and, and it clicked. So I got this super cool phone call a few months later that said, hey, we're a year out from the London Olympics. We're putting together our Olympic staff for the cycling, New Zealand cycling team for the games. We're lining up our managers, our nutritionists, our sports psychiatrists, our strength coaches. We want you to do our medical 
um, you know, not obviously the medical medical, they had a, an MD, but he wouldn't be traveling. He was basically there for consults if someone got sick. Okay. So I'd be the only true, you know, I was combo Cairo PT, athletic trainer, anything needed to be boarded or head injury. That was my job. And so I spent the year, I'd be gone with them to a, a camp or a world cup event. And then I'd come back here to Plattsburgh for a few weeks and I'd be gone for a few weeks and I'd come home for a few weeks. And ultimately, it, it, it culminated in from basically the 1st of June through the Olympics at the end of August, I was in Europe with them from Olympic camp to Olympic camp. And then wow. I ended up spending the full, I think, close to four weeks in the Olympic Village in London, which as an Olympic freak and a you know, track and field guy and a geek, I was in heaven for three weeks, just walking around, seeing yeah, all these the summer guys. games, summer games, man. It doesn't get any bigger. So you were, you were walking around with, I mean... So who who'd you see that was known like in 2012? Well, I mean, you must have ran into a few of the... The, the biggest of the big is, is Usain Bolt. Yeah. I mean, it didn't get any bigger than him for several years. Um, you know, because the NBA guys were there. Yeah. But they never stay in the village. I was going to say, I, I didn't yeah. think so. No, they just, they never were on. So I never saw them walking around. But Bolt, you could never get close to Bolt because the, the funny was we'd be in the dining hall and that was always the fun time. You'd have, you know, 30 minutes, maybe an hour if you were lucky to just relax. And you got to realize this dining hall for a month... I forget the stat exactly. You'd look it up, but I remember the London papers used to say, I think they could fit, I think it was 900 double decker London buses inside wow. this bubble. So it was basically the size. I remember I did the math. It was the size of a super Walmart, like here in Plattsburgh. It's like 125,000 square feet, just the dining hall. Oh my God. Open, imagine this for those of you that like to eat 24 hours a day for the whole month. You could go in there at two or three in the morning and get coffee from any nationality not coffee food or coffee uh, but food from any nationality in the world you go in there at like 3 a.m and get like ethiopian coleslaw they had the uh you know caribbean section they'd have the uh you know the african food and this and so it, it was just great in fact funny little story the the strength coach angus uh who's the one who really was my foot in the door to the whole thing First day there, we go in, I'm sitting next to him, and I just come back with this tray of just, I mean, it was smoked duck. It was, I mean, gourmet-type yeah. food, if you want it. And then, of course, the, the rumors are true. They do have a McDonald's in the dining hall, a full McDonald's, and it's surprisingly busy, um, considering this is a four-year peak for yeah. these athletes. Yeah. So anyway, I'm sitting next to Angus. He's, he's a typical Southern New Zealander. Big guy, former Olympic bobsledder for New Zealand. Tough, like, is tough he built dude. like a rugby yeah, player? Yeah, he's, he's about 205 yeah. pounds and just square-jawed, shaved head, tough guy. Um, a little bit like a smaller Jocko Wilnick, yes. is, yep. I mean, in looks and everything. Yep. And uh, he just grunts and, you know, <laughs> eh, eh. and he looks, he just, without stopping, he looks over and sees this gigantic tray of food just spilling off my plate, and I'm just eating. And he looks over and he says, uh, record's 25 and just keeps going to eating. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And he goes, record's 25. And I'm like, what are you talking about, Gus? He goes, the last guy gained 25 pounds in the four weeks at the Olympics. Wow. <laughs> so, so he saw that first meal and was just setting the tone. So I, I, I kind of dialed it back after that a little <laughs> bit, tried to keep kind of low carb. But uh, yeah, it was a pretty interesting experience. Did, so. did you see uh, like Phelps at all or any of those guys? Uh, Phelps would a he, couple times. Would he stay in the Olympic Village? I don't remember if he was staying full time. The thing was with the village, a lot of it, so they built this thing from scratch out in eastern London, kind of in the dock. It was really a, not a great area, I think, from what I've read before. Yeah. And they just built this. It's a, it's a city. Um, again, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering from eight years ago, but I want to say that they're, they're these tall dormitory-style buildings um, where all the athletes were housed. And I want to say... 
between coaches and athletes, the, the structures could hold 12 or 14,000 people. So you're that's, talking, that's you know, three quarters of the size of Plattsburgh in this relatively small area for a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and the big countries like USA would have a whole tower. They had that many staff and oh, athletes, wow. so it was the USA house. So you guys stayed... Oh, no, you weren't with that. No, I was with New Zealand. That's right, yeah. So we were. We had our own, too. New Zealand was big enough, um, Australia, and then the other countries would just take floors of the dorms, and, and they were very nice, simple but nice. Um, but they were very... I mean, 2012 was big security issues. That was the yeah. big one since... Um, well, not the big one, but it was, you know, London was a pretty big hotspot even yeah. then for terrorist stuff. And so there was, I, I can't even describe the security. The couple times we got to leave the village, it's all, it's like Fort Knox. We'd have to go through security fence after security fence just to go out and, you know, walk around the mall or something. So the mall, like the London mall, like a mall out in London. Normally. Yeah, huge. Okay. It's actually, I think at the time it was the biggest mall in Europe was built just outside the village. Um, for the purpose of this, I, no, I don't. I think it might have even been there before, okay. um, but just was we every once in a while we'd have a free half day off, or we could just go explore the city a little bit. So when when you say like the village, were the, were the actual competition yeah. like locations part of the village? Um, some kind okay. of, but no, most of them were off site. So you'd have to take secure buses. Staff and athletes would be bussed to the track venue. They'd be bused to the, oh, so the, the swimming track, complex. I would, like, I would think track and uh, the swimming would have been right there. No. So the village, at least in this case, um, was all basically housing, medical, dining, and like weight training. So it was basically the self-inclusive um, kind of village where they lived, ate, slept, kind of trained in, Worked in out some stuff. cases. Um if they if they were just lifting and stuff, but if you wanted to run on the track, you'd have to they had schedule practice times where you'd get bussed, and it was just a queue of dozens and dozens of buses would take you all over to different parts of London to tr- to train and compete. So the Olympics are rough. The, the summer is roughly three weeks, right? Yeah, about that. Yeah. So at least from my memory, watch because I'm the same thing. I love watching the Olympics yep. when the Olympics are on. I get pumped, yep. but. The first like week and a half is all, I say all swimming, but it's like yeah. it, the second half of the track and field. So if yeah. you were where where was the biking part of it? Like where kind did you of fall in throughout the whole time? Because really? there's okay. it's it, there's so many different events. It's it's a little like track and field in that okay. regard. Um, is that you've got women, you've got men, you've got the sprinters, you've got the more distance type track uh, cyclists, um, and then even with just my sprint boys, as we used to call them, the five the five guys I worked with most. There's multiple events. So there's team sprint. There's single sp- solo wow. sprints. There's there's events called the Kieran and the one, you know, all these different events. So I was busy pretty much from beginning to end, which kind of stuff. I mean, listen, it's, you know, I don't want to complain. Yeah. Um, it would have been nice to have a little more free time. Um, but we were pretty busy right through. We'd get some tickets occasionally for free. Yeah. Um, so I got to go see uh, the heavyweight Olympic weightlifting finals oh, one night. Cool. We got, yeah. which I, you know, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, and then... For me, the dream night was we got to go over um, and kind of snuck into the track and field venue uh, twice. But the big one was right toward the end, we were about 15, 20 rows off the track right at turn one, so right after the finish line. Yep. And I got to see Usain Bolt win the 200 meter. Oh, wow. And, and he did his whole lightning pose like, yeah. right in front of us. And then I got to see the world record broken, shattered in the 800 uh, just a, like an hour earlier. Really? Um, first guy ever to run one, a minute 40 for a half mile, which wrap your mind around that. Yeah. Um, so that, that was probably my, my favorite just night of as a spectator was just great. I, I would love to see, um, if, if it's ever in the U.S., I probably would go. Yeah. 
because now Canada's kind of cool too, but they always have it. It's in a city typically. Yeah. So the same thing U.S. Yep. Like it's Vancouver is probably the closest. I mean, obviously Montreal had. I don't know if Montreal would ever get it again. I guess, yeah. I guess it, it could, but it depends on. The other thing I've heard from the Olympics, a lot of these places don't make money on this event because it's so expensive. Quite the opposite. Yeah. You think they make money or no? No, 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 no. Quite. They, they lose. They don't or, only so, not sorry, make I meant, money. Sorry, I meant that. Yeah, they don't make yeah. money. Yeah, they lose money yeah, on it. Yeah, it's, yeah, they lose a ton. I think it was like Beijing. Like They considered the Olympic venue like a ghost town yeah. now because nobody lives there for whatever yeah. reason. Um, and that goes way back. Even like Sarajevo, you know, it's like a war zone. Really? And then it's just, yeah. it's, some of these, these, these places are just abandoned. Sochi. Uh, yeah. And Russia was another one that I've, I haven't read anything recently, but was just, you know, a lot of cases and, just abandoned. And that was, what, four, was that 14? Uh, Sochi was, hmm. was it, 16 that was, a was win- Rio. Was it winter? Yeah, 14. Which is crazy to think about how fast these move, because I remember London, yeah. like it was this, I remember Vancouver, you know, and then obviously Brazil and uh, with uh, Pyeongchang or whatever. Yeah. Yep, so, South I mean, Korea. It's, it's crazy how fast they move, which is every two years. Oh. Well, it didn't used to be, though. That's why it seems like it moves so fast now. So I, I forget the year it switched, but historically the winter and summer games are the same year. Yeah. Forever. Um, it just switched in like the mid-90s, I want to say, off the top of my head. 96, maybe. It could have been, yeah. Um, uh, there was Tur- Torino in Italy. Um, yep. was two thousand. I'm not 96. I'm sorry. 2000. Six, I want to say, but yeah, they switch to every other year, which you know, just good for fans. But it does, they well, do come fast. I think I remember watching the first Olympics that I really watched was '98, which was Nagano. Nagano, yeah, and that that was the first one I remember because to '96, I think was Atlanta. Yep, and that was I, I think I watched was it Michael Johnson running then in that time? Atlanta, yes. Okay, so yep. I think I remember like vividly watching him. And I was a little kid at the time, and then I really remember 2000, and, yeah. and from then on, I remember all of them. But um, yeah, I'd like to see it come back with, uh, with something within like either New York, Chicago, or Boston or something, and I don't know. But you can see, though, I mean, just look at the last couple bidding processes. Yeah. You don't have very many bids, um, and they were, you know, unfortunately racked with controversy the last five, ten years with the International Olympic Committee, you know, yeah. basically paying, you know, being bribed and cities bribing the IOC officials to pick them and but now you just don't see them, you know, knocking the doors down because they see the history that that you got to assume you're losing money in most cases as a host city. Yeah, and I, I don't I don't know how. Do you think they'd ever go away? You know, the Olympics with just financially, like people are just like it's a we just can't financially uh, unless multiple cities host it. Well, or yeah, I've heard that before, or have just won. You know, one would, summer games host and one winter games host. You know, forever. I've heard that oh, actually thrown okay. out. I mean, I'm not saying that's my yeah. opinion, but like I've you heard put that. it back in Athens and just you like, just right summer. Is it in yeah. Athens? Then you know the venues are going to be used every few years, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. then pick a winter sport. Or like you said, I've heard that too is cycle it um, within a small group of cities. You know, three, four, five winter cities, almost, almost like a golf rotation yeah. for the majors. That's right. I think, well, I think putting it all in one would be difficult because you do. It is cool to see the culture every yeah. time you go because really for the for a month you really celebrate that country, which yes. is neat. Like when Brazil had it, I mean, they just there was so much stuff around it, just on the news and everything yeah. else. And it was you kind of you get immersed in that country a little bit, even though you don't live there, but you just you watch it nonstop. Well, I've been on a bit of a uh, I'm a travel I'm a travel uh, freak. I love to travel, and so I didn't realize I was doing this. But a couple summers ago on a trip uh, in Europe, I was with my wife and. I realized I started to count how many Olympic cities I've actually visited. And like I said, it wasn't even my goal, but I have to actually sit down because I think it's, it might be like 20. Like and it's, it's a lot. of Past and future? Past, past and just current past. or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Past, current, winter, summer. So it's not necessarily you were there for, but like you, Lake no, no, Placid no, just, would count. Right. Lake yes. Placid would count, but like um, um, 
uh, Albertville, France. Like I wasn't planning. I just was, I was on a vacation for a week in France over by the Alps and Chamonix and we're driving and just stopped in Albertville for lunch what, driving. What, what was that Olympics? Uh, I don't 92 maybe. Oh, really? Oh, so I don't know. No, I, I, I just threw that off the top of okay. my head. I don't actually know that, but it might be. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so weird cities like that that have hosted. And I just like, you know, I've actually been uh, Innsbruck. I was in Innsbruck a couple of times with the bobsled. I'm like, wait, Innsbruck hosted the Is Olympics. That Germany? Uh, Austria. Yeah, right, Austria, right okay. on the border kind of. Um, so yeah, anyway, yeah, I got Olympic in my blood, I guess. So, um, and you were part of, and I think I remember this because they were, they were pretty big during the winter Olympics with the night train was the name of this, the bobsled. Yeah. Was that yeah. the guys you worked with? Yeah. Cause don't you have a picture in your office with them all signed? I had a couple of them. Yeah. So that was a crew that you worked with exclusively for the most part. Well, no. So, so typically it, it started a little different, but for the, the last, I'm just guessing 10, 12 years, Basically, bobsled and skeleton. So skeleton are the people that slide on their bellies mm-hmm. head first. Um, luge go on their back, feet first, for those of you that don't know. But bobsled and skeleton started traveling together, basically. So you'd have men's and women's skeleton, which are small teams. It might just be, you know, four, five, three, four, three to five men and women up each. And then bobsled. Now, the bobsled team, particularly for the men, are, are pretty good size because you've got... USA has always been, not always, but the last 15, 20 years been fairly competitive. So they have at least two, if not three sleds for men. That's mm-hmm. two-man teams. And then four-man teams, another at least two four-man teams. Now, obviously, some yeah. of those athletes do both. But I would say just bobsled men and women, they were probably traveling 20 to 25 athletes. And then you throw another seven to 10 skeleton athletes. Mm-hmm. It's like 30 ish athletes for one provider on the road. Um, it's busy. And these are big so men you, and women. You were the chiropractor for all of them. That's it for, yeah. for however many weeks I was with them. Gotcha. And so it was always volunteer. You had to be asked, but um, they would pay my flight. They would pay my lodging and everything. But basically I was working for free. And that's part of the reason after years of doing that for a few weeks, every winter, um, it just got to be, you know, I saw all the places I wanted to see. Yeah. I did a couple of world championships. It just, and then when I started traveling, teaching, continuing ed, like I've been doing the last six, seven years, it just got hard to justify kids were getting older, yeah. leaving for free, basically closing my office, not making money for two or three weeks, plus being away from the family. Additionally, when I could actually just travel and teach mm-hmm. a class and actually get paid um, so it just got tougher to justify. And that's when I started getting a little more into, you know, I've just recently started covering very little, but a few track and field events. I worked the pen relays a couple of years ago. I was supposed to run, work an international event this summer that obviously got canceled. So what's the pen relay? Pen relays. Um, I want to say the oldest relay in the U S if not, you know, is one that of like the older Penn ones. university or it is. Okay. Yeah. Down in Philadelphia. Okay. Um, so it's, it's been going on a hundred plus years. Um, it, it, the cool thing with the pen relays is it's everything from high school athletes all the way to international professionals. So like earlier on in the week, that's, that's like the meet you want to qualify for as a high school relay team. Okay. So they have these, re, you know, four by four, four by one boys and girls relays teams from all over the country come out and the stadium is just this massive two tiered state. You know, it's unlike anything most high school kids would see. And you're just running in front of tens of thousands of people in April in Philly. Um, so that was cool. That, uh, yeah, so so actually, I was talking to um, the last guy I was on, which I didn't realize that you guys had a pretty good connection, but it was Chris Berkey. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so a hurdle Chris, connection. Yeah, so Chris <laughs> Chris was talking about they went down to the state championship for I think yeah. it was last year. He had a kid from Saranac, yeah, who won the I, th- I believe it was the 110 meter hurdle. Yep, Cam Duffield. Yep, 
Yeah, so he won that, and then he said that his 110 hurdles, am I saying that? No, 400 meter hurdles, 400 he won. Hurdles. And the 110 hurdles, he ran the fourth fastest time ever and yes. got second place because the kid that ran the fastest yeah. broke the record. That's, and that's track was, and field, man. Yeah, and Chris, <laughs> and Chris was just saying, he's like, you know, his state championship run was phenomenal, but he goes, it was his actual 110 run was probably more impressive. Yeah. It's just he happened to go up against a stud that was just, you know, yep. probably a unfortunately just got paired with him it's kind of like the phil mickelson tagger woods yeah. you know you just get paired with such a good player um and it's it's better than it used to be so so you know i'll play the back in my day type yep, of thing here but you're old enough to say that. when i was nine so 90 you know 90 91 92 track I, like i said i played three sports at phs but track was definitely kind of my thing um but back then we didn't have division one and division two states like they do now so now it's split basically the big schools are division one at states mm-hmm. they compete against each other and then division two are all the schools like every basically all the schools around here are considered division two they're small yeah, they're small schools yep. and so they have their basically two separate state championships you're only competing against your division we didn't have that we, we competed against everybody in one state so for a section seven athlete back in the 80s or 90s to like place in the top six was unheard of um it was super super rare because you're well like i said so i did my last two years i ended up doing pentathlon which is half a decathlon that's what they do at high school so it's got you oh, five inches. yeah so it's um oh geez you think i'd remember that 110 <laughs> hurdles long jump shot put high jump and then the 1500 meter run so just short of a mile that was you did that over two days okay at the high school level and it was just kind of my wheelhouse i wasn't awesome um but i was pretty good at a lot of different things yep. which made me good at that event so excuse me long story short um i look back i was lucky enough to get sixth my junior year and then fourth my senior year two of the three kids that beat me my senior year were shenandoah kids now shenandoah if you're not familiar in clifton park i think is like fourteen thousand kids k through 12 huge um it's a massive like 5a school my sister's actually a a coach there and a teacher um so i was like it just it's it's like it would have been nice to have the small school big school and i would have actually had a chance to to compete at the top of the top yeah. uh, but you know it made it that much more special too because it was so uncommon there weren't many of us that that were able to do well so it was nice yeah the the uh, the track and field i mean the, the only thing i have is we soccer we went to Chazy, so really oh, yeah, we have yeah. soccer we have track and field but when you go to like the state championship level um at least from we play in classification so we we're always the smallest school we we're the class yeah. d and i remember my junior year we had were really good we won now, I, I came in the tail end of this time period, but our team won the 04 state championship, went undefeated in 2005, won. Yep. We're undefeated in 2006 until we got we got upset by E-Town in the finals. Yep. And up to that point, I think we had like a 55-game win streak, which was, yeah, I think to this I day, that. I think it's like number, it's pretty high in the state, either yep. number two in the state, I think lifetime. But we were ranked, I think, in the top 15 in the region as a D school, which was right. pretty incredible. And... Same thing when you go to states and, and you do, um, which is weird because they, the girls, when they go to states, they always do um, first and second team of each classification. Yes. So we always had like a lot of girls get on the, the yep. one or two. For the guys, they just did, yeah. I think it was small school, large schools, what they classified it. So yep. you're talking B, C, and D. Yeah. So it was the same thing. When we got a couple of the, the guys that we played with that got on first team all state, you were all state of B, C, and D, which... Yeah. Um, not a lot of people. We every year we usually get one one guy on, maybe two yeah. if we had a good like a really good team. But it's tough. Yeah, it's it's interesting argument and, and seeing you know. So fast forward to you know present day again, 
in my office, I treat a lot. It's kind of my expertise. I treat a ton of like middle school, high school athletes, mm-hmm. boys, girls, whatever sports, you know, all this stuff. And it's, it's just an interesting generational. And I know I come across sounding like the back in my day guy, but it's track and field is interesting because it's fairly objective. You know, you yep. can kind of go back 30 years and get a pretty similar assessment because you've got times, you've got distances, you've got, you know, whatever. And if anything, you'd argue the further you go back, the bigger the disadvantage. You know, it's funny. I, yep. I, I joke my, my, my son's now going in, just finished 10th grade at Plattsburgh High and, and is a runner <laughs> as well. And I joke with him. I said, you'd think I was like 80 years old. But my junior, senior year at PHS, I want to say almost half the tracks I ran on were cinder. Wow. Which is crazy. Yeah. Peru was still a cinder track in like 1991. And cinder 92. being like that dusty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like, just slow. Yeah. So a sable was like a, running at the Plattsburgh City Beach. It was like soft cinder um, where you'd not only have to hurdle, you'd have to watch where you landed you so you didn't out. break an ankle in a, in a pit that was carved from the previous guy. Um, and it's just, it's interesting because, and we, none of us weight trained back then. You know, we, mm-hmm. I never lifted a weight in high school. No one did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's, it's weird and almost sad that if you look at some of the all time records, section records, and also just, I know the PHS record just cause you know, having kids that go there, they have the record board and it's just crazy when you look back with all these, the better tracks, the better knowledge we have, nutrition, strength and everything. Why like. 75% of the still school records at PHS are pre-1999. That's crazy. Um, it's, it, it is crazy. And it's, it's, it's a too wide a gap to say it was just a few freak athletes that broke all the records. There were a couple of those. Yeah. Um, but it's just, there are, now there's a couple of outliers. There, there was, you know, a few years ago, then you said like Cam Duffield last year for Saranac was just a freak of freak. He was fantastic. Is he um, running college now? Yes. I, I believe he signed at, Albany. I think he's well, down at right. Albany. Yes, Ferky said that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's and, and I just it's an interesting thought uh, doing what I do, treating injured kids, trying to get kids excited about exercise and nutrition and eating right. And even with my own kids, as active as they are, it's an uphill battle, and it just makes you. It begs the question, why? Yeah. Um, I know part of it is most sports have just seen a pretty steady decline just in general participation. Mm-hmm. The numbers aren't there, mm-hmm. um, you know, which, which obviously makes it harder to break records, but it's, it's, and there's not one answer. It's multifactorial because it, everybody's quick to blame the video games. Are they less active? And, and maybe that's a part of it too. I just don't know. Um, you just don't see um, the depth of athletics that well, you did a generation or two ago. Well, that's why I, like I've been to Plattsburgh State, and they have same thing. They have the board up there, and like yeah. Verky's up there still yeah. a bunch of times. And there's a couple that have been broken recently. Mm-hmm. There's a couple when I went to school that were broken. Um, there's a few other people I know locally that ran. You see their records up yep. there, which is kind of cool. Um, but I think from a sports perspective, and I kind of look at this as, and again, I played a lot of golf when I was a kid. I remember look. I look at and this was a couple years back. I was looking at scores in the paper for golf, and yeah. they compared to. 10 years ago or 15 years ago were, were not very good. Meaning, you know, you might have one or two kids that could break 45 on a six man roster. Well, back in the day, like your fifth and sixth guy were shooting in the low forties. Really? And that's with a, less technology, oh, worse yeah. clubs. Yeah. You're talking yeah. 10, 15 years. Like I remember going mm. out and playing and like, I would look at my scores and I'd look at the kids and be like, I, and I was a pretty good golfer. Like I could yeah. shoot in the thirties and, mm. you know, right around 40 and I would have probably been anywhere from a one, two or three in most teams. 
And then now I look at it like I would be clear one back yeah. in the day. Not, not anymore. I don't play as much. Yeah, but yeah, back yeah. in the day, it would be clear one. So I think part of it is there's more... There's more things now taking kids' attention away from sports. Fair enough. And it could be, like I said, it could be video games. Could just be a million other things. Like that's something I look at now. It's like how now one of it is I got a. I'm also in adulthood with kids, but it's there's. I just feel like there's so much stuff going on all time, especially with kids being in like clubs and extracurriculars. There's not when I was in like when I went to school, you played sports and that was it. I wasn't doing karate. I wasn't doing right. you know travel stuff. I wasn't doing all these extracurriculars. I was doing like soccer basketball baseball and yeah, in the summer i play golf or baseball it's so. a good point and i mean along the same lines uh, probably the last thing i'll say on this is I, I the biggest thing i see and again i i would put just knowing my f- kids friends a little bit now and mm-hmm. seeing them I, my, my kids are you know 16 and almost 15 now and they're definitely active more active than i think the average 16 year old would be nowadays um but Growing up, the, the thing that's alarming to me, and again, I don't want to say it's everyone, but just as a kind of generalization, is a real lack of free play with kids. Yeah. And, and again, you could argue it's more distractions. You know, we weren't fighting, you know, uh, you know, over 18 different gaming systems and the computers and the phones and all that, granted. But it just seems like what did you do if you had an afternoon off you were playing three on three dunk ball at somebody's house on the eight foot hoop you're making up a game of wiffle ball somewhere mm-hmm. and i am just a firm believer that it's that from four five six years old that make the well-rounded super stud athletes as juniors and seniors in high school yeah. i just i am i am on that and I've, I've worked with enough phys ed teachers in the area and seeing their frustration at kid after kid just doing anything to get out of participating in phys ed, you know, fake notes from parents, sometimes frighteningly enough, real notes from parents for yeah. non-real reasons, just because, uh, you know, Bobby doesn't want to break a sweat for some reason. Yeah. Um, and then you compare it to me in my 40s, and me and my friends were begging study halls, could we go down and sit in on gym Yeah, just to get an extra gym class in because yeah. they're playing handball or dodgeball or something. I'm yep. like, that's awesome. Let's go down. And and so I don't know. I think that's at the heart of it. I really do. That just a lack of the so, free play. So I agree 100%. So we, I, I obviously I played up t- uh, until I graduated. And then I started coaching a couple years later. Mm. And I was helping Rob out at Shay Z. And then I went and started doing JV. And I coached. I think like head coach JV for like six years in soccer. So it was, it was great. I had a blast. Yep. I wish I could still coach, but what happened was I could, I could progressively see over that roughly eight to 10 year stretch that I was at a high mm-hmm. school when I stopped coaching that two things happened. The knowledge base of the kids went down, mm-hmm. meaning understanding the sport went down. And number two is we had a lot of specialty soccer players where if I was to give them a basketball or a hockey stick or something, they could not do it. And, like you said, they get so specific at one sport that when you ca- ca- cause them to cross train in another sport, they can't do it. No. And one of the things that I grew up with, I was like on a Shazy sports team. I could, I I played. Like I mean, I was on the team, but I would play. I wouldn't sit the bench, but I wouldn't be the star athlete. I was kind of in that middle middle of the road, but. That was every single sport. So I was just kind of steady at all of them. But same thing, if you said, hey, Galen, go play tennis right now, right. I would be coordinated enough to do yes. okay at it. Kids nowadays aren't. You know, they're good with their feet. They can't shoot. They can't dribble. We kind of joke walk and chew gum at the same time is hard. But the other thing is some of the kids that I coached, fin- way better skilled than I ever was in soccer, don't understand the game. And right. I, I – 
and again, I don't want to, like you said, like back in my day, but I remember kids that I played with, there were some very smart kids on the field that have gone on the coach and have gone on to do other things. And I get some kids, um, the, the smallest little thing that you think they would have by the time they're uh, junior high, they just want to get it. And I'm like, right. guys, this is like basic 101. But what they lack, like you said, if we had, if we were at a friend's house for a party, well, we're throwing two shoes down and two shoes down. We're playing right. 3v3 or 4v4 soccer right. in the backyard. Which to me is where you get the creativity of moving, moving without the ball and shielding someone off. You got two guys to pass to. Well, yeah, it it, it, it's, it now you don't play it anymore. No, like and you've opened up a can. Of, I mean, I could talk. We could do a four-hour podcast on this topic. It's a point of passion of mine. But the it's really, and it's not my opinion. Most orthopedists, most uh, sports science biomechanist people that are make a living on watching people move and watching how people get hurt and how they perform are in complete agreement and probably the worst thing to ever happen to kids now is the early sports specialization. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was growing up, it was basically hockey in a, in a lot of ways. Hockey was always, but hockey's always a little bit of a different, an outlier of a yep. sport. They skate young, they could skate year round and you know, this and that. And they were always a little bit of the different uh, kind yeah. of the, yeah. Now it's every, almost every sport. I mean, you got AAU with basketball. You've got, so- I mean, soccer Soccer's was probably the next one after yeah. hockey to come on, you know, 15, yeah. 20 years ago where they're playing soccer year round. And I forget who I heard it from, but, um, you know, a national level kind of soccer sports science guy at a, at, a, at a sports med seminar I was at years ago. He said, what we've now done is made really good skilled soccer players. And unfortunately, we don't have any athletes. Yeah. And and even I've, I've had this conversation with, with parents of kids in my office where, you know, you with this a kid at eight or nine years old and i get i i get these arguments from parents that well if he if if bobby or sally doesn't play soccer year round now they're going to be left back you know what i mean it's almost this pressure this catch 22 when in reality my argument is if he's or she's going to be an elite soccer player they could probably go the next four years and never touch a soccer ball and come back to it Mm -hmm. and they'll be getting division one you know what i mean it's just the athletes are groomed but they're ultimately born in a lot of ways. Yeah. And either you're going to make it or you're not. And most of these kids, at the very minimal, playing multiple sports a year would be better at injury prevention. They'd be less likely to get hurt. Yeah. And in most cases, you'd argue over the long term, they're going to be better at whatever they end up doing if they play. And in fact, it, it's such a, I don't know, it's most of the experts in the world are in agreement that at the earliest, the earliest, no matter how much the kid begs, but the absolute earliest you should consider specializing year-round in a sport is in your mid-teens. Yep, you know, 14, 15 would be the earliest. Until then, get them as playing as many different sports as they can um, and just see where it shakes out. I, I didn't even think about the injury part, but you again, playing different sports, using different muscle groups, using different biomechanics. Like I was just thinking that I, nev- well, I never got injured ever. I never missed a game because of injury, but I'm thinking about all the kids that I played with very rarely do we have kids miss games because of injury where I know what you're talking about. If you have one kid that specializes in basketball yeah, and they all of a sudden change, you know, they, their hips or feet or whatever only go one way or the other. Cause I know, um, we had a lot of girls too, that played just soccer back when I played and yeah. a lot of them got injured and that was yeah. the only sport they played because they weren't two, three sport athletes. No, no. And, and that's and, probably, but I know a, hips are different on girls and right. It is. And knees. Um, but in soccer is probably one of the better ones in basketball to play year round just because it's so variable, mm-hmm. meaning you're running different, changing directions, yep. you're jumping, you're sprinting, you're jogging, you're everything in between, as opposed to the ones I really see getting hammered around here 
is, and again, I am a track and field freak. I love the sport. I think when they introduced indoor track and field up here in the North Country was probably the most damaging thing you could have done from an injury perspective and from a mental burnout factor for a lot of local runners. Because now, especially the distance runners, because now you see them running cross country for a few months in the fall. They go right into little to no break. They're now running distances on really subpar tracks up here in upstate New York, indoor tracks. Is it just is it just Fieldhouse? Is that the only place they run? Um, they run at the Fieldhouse almost every week. It's yeah. a sectional meet every year, and it's a 160-meter, really old track, not ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they go right into running You know, your mile, two miles outdoors. And I just see this influx toward the end of every season and building throughout, you know, at the end of indoor and in the beginning of outdoor of all these overuse injuries and especially distance running. That's the opposite of soccer in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So linear, so easy to develop these repetitive stress, the stress fractures and everything else. I just think, again, long term development, I think they would be better off just doing something else for the two or three months in the winter. Yeah. Um, You know, maybe run on their own, but not at a competitive level and kind of build on, have a chance to build some weaknesses, add a little strength training and do, you know, play basketball, do something. Are the kids running, doing more strength training now, or is that still kind of taboo for them? No, I, I, no, not taboo, but I I wouldn't go as far either to say that a lot of them are doing strength training. It's It's getting better. It's more on probably the kid taking it, take it like the kid taking an initiative to go like at home or, you know, go to the gym by himself and do it. Yeah. It's my, you know, that's my, that's become kind of my niche is runners. Yeah. You know, that's what I've kind of known for in, in the community is just overuse injuries, running in particular triathletes, you know, anybody that's kind of running a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a pet peeve that it doesn't take much, you know, one or two sh- sessions a week of some good strength training. Um, it's not my opinion. I mean, the, the studies are just overwhelmingly that yeah. not only does it reduce injury, and this is the hard sell with some of the, the runners, not only does it reduce injury, but strength training, getting stronger, improves distance running performance. You know, it's, it's been, we've known that with sprinting mm-hmm. forever. Um, yeah, I mean, you see some of the physiques of these elite sprinters, yeah. um, but it's distance running. It improves running economy. It improves time to fatigue. It improves performance. Um, you know, and again, you don't have to be a meathead and be hammering weights four or five days a week, literally one or two sessions a week has been shown to uh, improve distance running performance. Well, one of the, again, back to the soccer, we've, for all, for all the success we've ever had at Shazie, and this is stuff, you know, we've, we, we talked about when I was coaching, um, you know, trying to get kids to go to the gym, because one, we never did that when I was in school, right. and then it was kind of, again, as technology improved, and you started to be more aware of, of you know, different, I guess technology, but you know, philosophies or whatever that work, you know, then it was like, okay, we got to start doing strength training. The problem is to get a kid to go in, they want to play soccer. They want to strength train. So that's always the hard sell on kids. It's right. like, cause I'm thinking about how many teams we would have had that would have been so much better. Had each kid put on 10 to 15 pounds of muscle right. at an age where they're like, they're basically like weeds. They grow like crazy. Yeah. And if you want to put weight on, you can, it, it, it is. And that's the whole point. That's what the off season's for. Mm-hmm. And this is the problem. There yeah. is no off yeah. season anymore. Yeah, you're right. You, and you can't, you can't say all season is, is important. You just can't do it. You know, yeah. is it travel in the spring and summer? Is it the fall during is the thing? Is it your club team? Is it, it can't all be equal. Yeah. If it, and that's what the, everyone's trying to do is it's all important and it can't be all important year after year, or you will get, Injured or burned out at the best case. You get these kids that, that, that perform unbelievably, especially you see, again, running, just because it's, it's so easy to get burned out with the running physically and mentally. Mm-hmm. And you see, I can't tell you how many these kids end up going, you know, very high division three or some cases division one, 
and they never finish. You know, they've dropped out of running by their freshman sophomore year of college. Yeah. They just they've had it. Well, I think, and I've seen some kids go, and it's it's rare because you see a lot of kids that do well, but then I think when they go to college, you got to treat it as a job at that point. So really, your passion for the sport has to be beyond just I'm good at it. Yeah. And I think because I've I've played with some kids in soccer, and a lot of them didn't go all four years of soccer. Right. They're very good players, but I think part of it was either I didn't like the kids I was playing with, I didn't like the idea that it was now felt like a job, yeah. or um, or it was like, hey, I, I played so many years of soccer and I'm in college, I just want to check out and just hang out with friends yep. and, and yep. relax. So, yeah, um, it's interesting. We got to make, you know, it just we need to make some changes just philosophically, I think. So, what well, do they do? I mean, I, granted, if you're talking like track and field, when you talk about like the Olympic trials and kids trying to work for the Olympics, because mm-hmm. you're talking a sport now. I know they have um, nationals and they have worlds. Are those yearly or are those every couple years? At the international level, you yeah. mean like the so there's or I well, should say I should say you know domestic and international like national they have the, they have like the, the, the U.S. championships right or the world, yes or they have national, national championships every year okay. there's world championships every hmm, two years I think and the Olympics every um, four. and then the Olympics every four and then they have their typical World Cup you know in track and field it's it's Diamond League mm-hmm. um, where it's basically like a, you know like a NASCAR race where you're going from city to city. Uh, over the course of the summer, gotcha. um, it, competing. It, so like a circuit almost. Exactly. And now it, now for the Olympic trials, is that a totally separate thing? That's just for the Olympics? Like that's on yes. top of the nationals or they use... That, that's am I right. saying it right? Nationals or is it... Yeah, yeah. You got, I mean, yeah. national championships? USA's. Yeah, USA championships. So that would be used as the time trials or the Olympic trials for the Olympics? Or is that totally separate? No, race? so they, they call them separate. They, the Olympic trials is a definite separate race. Okay. The year of the Olympics. And they don't... They don't stop any of the other races. They just keep, like, they're still... No, so you'd have your regular World Cup circuit. It might be cut a little short. Um, yeah. Or they may, I mean, you know, not every country may have their Olympic trials at the same time. So it might just be that the USA athletes cut their World Cup season a little short to focus and taper for the... So, so for the easiest way to put it is, so we were supposed to have the Tokyo Olympics this fall, mm-hmm. September. September or July? Uh, either way. This summer, July, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so the U.S. Marathon Olympic trials... Um, were in Atlanta in February, right before the whole world kind of fell oh, apart. Wow. Okay, um, and it was the biggest group, men and women. I, I, I think we're close to seven or eight hundred people that had qualified, had time qualified. So wow. it was this huge race, very difficult course, super windy, cool day, um, and it was straight up for the first time ever. Top three go to the Olympics. We believe it or not, with a country as strong as we are um, athletically, historically, we'd never had. Um, we had never been deemed good enough in a way where we could get top three automatically get to go to the Olympics. It's always been if you qualify on time only. So this was the first trials where, hey, you get in top three, no matter how fast or slow you run, you're going to the Olympics. And so we got our three and then they, you know, obviously canceled the Olympics. Is, delayed. That, is that a new way to do it? Or They've always done the race. It's just no one was ever guaranteed that they would go. Even if they won, if they didn't win with a fast enough time. Gotcha. Even though they were oh, U.S. Right. champ at the Olympic trials, it didn't necessarily guarantee them. So why why the switch? I'm not sure. I didn't I didn't read yeah. in on Was it. it just enough, but to get, to get the participants, I guess. Well, it's it's more po- politicking, I think, with the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, to okay. give the U.S. that status of like the gold sticker, saying, "Yeah, you're competent. You know, you've got a deep enough field and enough good athletes running the marathon for mm-hmm. USA that we're going to not give you this golden sticker where top three go." Does uh, Does Galen Rupp still run? 
Um, yeah, though he's had some injury trouble. Because I just remember Galen, he, but he was a good runner at Oregon. But interestingly enough, um, two local kids ran in the race this year. Uh, really? The Olympic trials, uh, two Peru kids wow. that graduated from Peru High School. Oh, so they're um, young kids then? Well, no, no, no. So these these guys are graduated now, so running kind of semi-professionally. Um, but both, they yeah, had two kids from Peru both ran in that but young, race. But younger? Uh, mid-20s. Oh, wow. Good for them. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, so that was kind of neat to see. Um, but, yeah. Now, what about the uh, the guy that ran the sub-two-hour two marathon? Did you watch that race? I did. Watch like, yeah, highlights I, of it? Yeah, I watch all that stuff. And yeah. I, I get I, that up. Um, it's, a, it's a freak event. You know, the guy, it, it's a crazy number when you think about it. Um, you know, the argument against for people in that field that it's not, it's a, it's an, it's a record with an asterisk. Yeah. Because it wasn't done in an open competition. It was basically Nike had just done years of research and figured out the right circuit course that was perfectly flat in the right humidity with the right cool temperatures was there a tailwind no no it was basically a loop circuit in italy um i forget it was only seven or eight kilometers like like you know four mile or whatever oh so we kept just rerunning over and over and over it's city streets it was on the road yeah but it was perfectly flat they picked a spot in italy the time of day the time of year when the humidity was was right and the temperatures were perfect but more so he was basically surrounded by pacers by world-class Nike distance runners. And their Nike engineers had figured out this kind of flying wedge. If you remember from like football kick returns, yep. they basically, their, their biomechanists and, and engineers figured out the best way to create the most advantage from a draft would yep. be to put this runner in the middle of this wedge of runners. And every like five kilometers, these pacers were subbing out like a Indy 500 pit crew they wouldn't even stop they would just these new guys would come on fresh yeah and they would follow a car that was projecting laser beams on the ground in the exact dots where every runner had to be oh my god and and moving at record pace so they just had to basically know they were running on that dot and they were in the perfect formation. So as long as they had the capacity, they were going right. to do it. Yeah. So you know, it's a, and, and then the big controversy was the Nike Vapor shoes, the 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 ones they Vaporfly Plus, I think, or percent, and very controversial uh, with this carbon shank that Nike was claiming was adding two to four percent efficiency, which is a huge amount at that level. Yeah. Um, and you know, the IOC deemed them legal it was just very controversial it's kind of like the old swimsuits that used to have for the olympics well so that's an interesting point so i because this question came up wasn't in my, that like 2000 that was a big thing it, in athens yeah i forget what year it was but what what night what track and field has to determine going forward is do they want to go the way of those old swimsuits the dimpled suits yep or do they want to go the way of the slap skates and speed skating so if okay. you remember so the the suits you were talking about they had they were basically like golf balls they were covering almost all the skin i think it was the the uh, australian athletes all wore them well you i believe the usa, USA did, did too because they legalized usa swimming le- or, or uh, whatever the international swimming association legalized them okay and then like every world record was shattered the first like 4 yeah. months and then they shut them down and said they are no longer legal um, so these shoes could eventually be kind of deemed that, that this has gone beyond normal technology advancing, that this structure of the shoe is too much of an unfair advantage mechanically. Um, It's not really a human competition anymore. 
The other way they could go years and years ago is speed skating. What they forever, like when Eric Hyden was skating, mm-hmm. they ski uh, skated on a solid blade that was attached from front to back to the boot of the skate. Okay. So, but years ago, they developed something called a slap skate, where as they go to push off and go up on their toes, the back of the skate is on a hinge. So gotcha. the blade stays in contact with the ice all the way through push off, which is way faster and more efficient so they developed gotcha, these brand yeah. new skates they made them legal and all the world records proceeded to fall usa uh um speed skating basically said these are legal this is a technological advancement it's fair everyone has access to the skates yeah this is our new normal going forward so that those are the two directions basically usa or you know ioc so, has to go with track and field. so these shoes are new the ones nike just yes, made in the last year because um, I was watching it and I didn't realize all the, all the other. I just, I was thinking, okay, this guy's on a flat or downhill course. I didn't realize it was a no, loop. No, it's a loop. Yep. Um, then I was thinking, okay, there's got to be some kind of tailwind. And I'm thinking the guys in front of him, obviously from a draft and then a pacing perspective. Um, now, is this guy like, I, I don't know enough about distance running. Is this guy like the Tiger Woods of distance running? Yes. I mean, he, this guy's well known as like. Yes. Kipchoge. Like, wins um, everything. Yes. He's, again, I'm off this off the top of my head, but at the time, I want to say he'd won. And he, these guys don't typically do, you know, small, you know, uh, backwoods town marathons. These guys save themselves for, for like one the or London. two elite yeah. competitive. That's where the prize money is. Um, yeah, London, New York, Chicago, Boston. Berlin, Boston sometimes. Um, and so I want to say he had either won eight of the nine marathons he'd ever entered. Wow. And I think he was second in the one he didn't win. So this guy was the best of the best, best in history. Had like the, the, the top three or four fastest times in history. Um, had gotten it down to like 202. 57 or something by himself uh, by like, himself like in a legit. legit race in berlin um now since then that the legit record has come down and i want to say it's too flat high so just under wow. like two hours one minute um so who knows it's a big gap i mean to shave a minute or two is yeah. is a crazy amount of time at that level because a lot of people you hear the times oh he ran a 205 he ran a two hour three minute or he ran in Kipchoge's with the nike uh, uh plan 159 it's it's insane pace when yeah. you break it down that when when the record went 20257 it was the first guy to ever run sub 203 i try to when i teach these lectures when i travel a little bit i always tell people i go who here runs a little bit you know who does their local 5k or the turkey trot or this mm-hmm. and that and you know for most of us like a 20 minute 5k you're it's moving fast. right along it's man fast. i mean that's a pretty good for a regular joe runner that runs yeah. 2 3 4 times a week a 20k these guys at two hours and three minute marathon pace are averaging approximately 14 minutes and 40 seconds per 5k Insane. for seven plus 5ks consecutively. So put in perspective, that's four 40 mile pace. Oh my God. For 26 consecutive miles, he's averaging 440. Now they don't just, that's not steady. These guys are surging. They'll, they'll, they'll hammer a 5k in like 1420 something and then back off a little bit and separate people. They're just averaging a casual 440 mile for 26 miles. Now, a 440 mile would win pretty much every mile boys race in high school CVAC in oh. most races. Yeah. And that's one mile. <laughs> yeah, that's... 
I, I, I remember running my my fastest mile ever was when I was in high school. And again, I wasn't played soccer, wasn't a runner. I just I ran just over six, so it was like right. low, it was yeah. like six oh five maybe. Yeah, so or you he they would have beat you by oh, like been, a lap and a half in a mile race. Yeah, and that was her pace, and, and that's that's, 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 that's the thing where I'm like, and at six minutes again, I know I wasn't like. I wasn't like speeding, but I was like, that's for me. That's that was fast. a very good yeah. time for me back in high school. And uh, then I look at it and I'm like, yeah, a 440. And it just blows my mind. There's certain like athletic feats that I just like look at. And I'm like, that's just incredible. And that's one of them. It is. Like, it, it's, and you even if you're into it and watch the races, you, the speed doesn't carry over on TV because they're all running that fast. So you'll see a yeah. pack of 15 guys it's or girls. Yeah. Yeah. And they're just cruising along and they, you just don't realize they're, they're dropping 440 miles. So, uh, Kipchoge, Kip Kipchoge, yep. Kipchoge. So if Kipchoge was to run, now it's, it's obviously a different race. If he was to run a mile, can he improve quite a bit on that, or is he just like muscle structure and, and twitch fibers and all that? Is no he just idea. Built for long? Oh, no, I mean he could definitely run faster than a four forty. Like but do you um, think? I mean, he's not obviously not competing with a mile or no. runner, but like, could he run from a four forty probably down to like a sub four fifteen? Is oh, that possible? Yo, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he I would, just didn't know like how yeah. how much difference they can have. I'm just guessing. I, I'd I'd have to go back and see if he's ever raced one. Yeah, uh, just a mile or a two mile race. But he could probably run a four minute mile. If he had oh, to. Oh, probably sub four. Yeah. yeah. What, what's the mile time now record? Oh, geez, you're you're asking me deep diving here, Galen. What, I, I, was, well, I want to say three. It's crazy. It might be high three forties, like three forty seven. Yeah. It's remember when stupid uh, numbers? Well, you said when uh, like Roger Bannister was the first one yeah. to break the four, but he was doing it on those dirt tracks, you yeah. know, which obviously aren't ideal. So right there in technology, but it's impressive when you because I've I've run like a four hundred, like yeah. a four hundred and. For someone to say you ran under a one minute four hundred is fast, and yeah. then you do that four times, like the better way to look at it with the with the marathon world record, I, I always tell when I teach. I said if because usually I'm on the road, and mm-hmm. I'll say if anybody in the room, I said if you guys want to feel what that that two oh three pace for a marathon is, go down to the treadmill in the in the hotel, and put it up to just under fourteen miles an hour. It's like 13.8 or 13.9 miles an hour is their average speed for like two hours. Well, a lot of treadmills don't even go past 12. Yeah. They're 12% incline, 12% max. Some go to 15 miles an hour, but that's maxed out. I, 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 See I, how you do. I saw some people on YouTube trying to, to do it for, um, I think they had, to, I think the the test was how fast can you go at that pace? Yes. And guys were, I mean, they were checking out for like a minute. Yeah. Like if they went a minute, some guys were like, that was incredible that I made a that's minute right. at this pace. Well, you're still at 60, it's a sub 70 second quarter mile. Yeah. So you're running like a 68 second lap on the track. It's it's a dead sprint. For a hundred and something laps. Yeah. It's insane. So like that, that's one of the, 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 even, even take away that even a 202 marathon blows my mind how fast those people can run. Yeah. I mean, they trained for it, but it's like that, that. I don't know. It's just like, I think the Olympics, cause I watch like sports, like you watch football and you watch soccer and you watch all these sports and you're like, that's, that's really cool. But then when you actually put it into the Olympic where you have times, yes, you can really judge it. Cause like a swimming going down and back or the guys that dive in and just do those 50 meter swim in like 29 yep. seconds. You're like, yep. Oh, okay. That's like yeah. how fast that is. And, or to bring it back to bobsled, that's what makes it so challenging bobsled because every track is different. The weather yeah. can make it fast or slow if the ice is warmer or colder, the air temperature is warmer or colder. So there's just too many variables to objectify it. So you really can just go by who's dominating, you know, week after week, who's winning. Do, do you ski at all? Yeah. Do you like a lot? Do you still actively yep. ski? Yep. We watched, you might like this. Now, 
we watched this the other day on uh, Netflix. It was called like Magnificent or Majestic. Yeah, or... yeah, I saw that. Oh, you did watch it? I, I think so. I think we're talking about was, the same. We're talking thing. about like the big wave surfers yeah. and the skiers. Yeah, we, in we, Portugal we, and stuff. Oh my yeah. god, we were watching this th- this and. Uh, the problem was we started fast forwarding a lot of it because there's like the kite skate. And yeah. I'm like, okay, that wasn't as cool as the guy that was doing the 90 foot wave. Yeah. And you start watching these guys doing 90 foot waves. I'm thinking that was impressive. And then what was also impressive, you had the one guy that went up to the Alps and went down that mm-hmm. face, which I don't know what the, the steepness of that was, but it was insane. Yeah. But then the other guys that, that basically hiked up and yeah. then backcountry, backcountry ski, yeah. but they came down. I'm like, how? That just blows my mind. They're like, we're going to hike eight hours up, and then you're yeah. talking. I don't know. Again, like I've been to Whiteface, and those are pretty steep, but I mean, these got to be way steeper than Whiteface. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's in the Alps. Yeah. Sometimes some of those faces, I think, are approaching, you know, 50 degrees, it's 60 degrees. Yeah. I mean, it's it's vertical. It, it certainly looks vertical. Yeah. I mean, I've never, I'm not anywhere near. I'm a good, solid, I'd say intermediate to advanced. Like, I'll ski any mountain like you know groomed yes. i might take my time i might have to jump turn my way but i can pretty much get down just about anything but yeah i, I watch all those videos too and it just makes your stomach turn just watching them yeah but that gets into a whole other field beyond just athleticism you know it's more of a mental a adrenaline yeah, craziness well, there. well the al you know probably the ultimate in recent memory is the uh free solo movie you know the alex hanold i got his book i haven't read it yet, yeah but. yeah it's phenomenal Whoa. um it makes your stomach turn um, and it's just an interesting part of that documentary was when they did the functional MRI on his brain, you know, and he had all this basically, you know, no, no firing of the regions of his brain that should have registered fear. Um, yeah. he just is almost dead to it and you almost have to be to do some of that stuff. The, as, the you know. freaky thing about that movie, besides the fact my hands are sweating the whole yeah. time, cause I just, I, I don't know, it's just freaky, but was like when he was just trying to go up fast. He wasn't yes. like, I was going to miss it. He goes, I was just, he just, yeah. And all of a sudden he was like, to the point where I, th- I think there was one really funny part when they said like, Oh, is he at this party? Oh yeah. He blew by like 20 minutes yeah, ago yeah, yeah. and he yeah. was just going. And, and then there was that one scene where he was stretching. Yes. Reaching for that. Cause well, he had to stretch for that wall, but he was yeah. practicing stretching deep cause he knew how oh, far yeah. he had to actually get his body. Yeah. So he was just like working certain and it was, and again, he knew every step on that mountain. And it yeah. just blows my mind that, one, I, I just think that's insane. But then all these guys that are filming it, and it's like, imagine just that day filming it. Like, you got to be like on the edge of your well, seat. Well, the guy said in the one, he goes, I, I don't want to watch my friend fall through the frame. Yeah. You know, as kind of, I think that was Jimmy Chin that said that. Um, yeah. And, I, you know, I, I think it's really taking something away from those type of athletes, the, the, the uh, you know, whatever, adrenaline freak sport things. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to call, cause we always grew up hearing it was just always oh, got a death wish, you know, that phrase death wish. And yeah. I think that's really undermining because I'm sure there are some people out there to just a uh, screw loose, but you, you just said it like with Hanold, you cannot tell me if anything, he's over the top, uh, attention to detail, almost oh. like a little on the spectrum yeah, kind yeah. of, you know, w- with his sketch pad and every little hold. So you can't say it's a death wish. Now, you and I could say that just because it looks crazy, but I, I really do think, and I'm no neuroscientist or you know psychiatrist or anything, but just as an armchair uh, and athletic performance person, I just think there's something in the brain. And like I said, they touched on it in the hand, on the free solo doc a little bit of this. I think it just takes, it's different levels, whether it's a neurochemical, they need more stimulation yeah. um, than you and I do. 
um, you know, to, to reach that kind of fear level, uh, I, something in there, but anyway, it's cool anyway. To yeah. Watch, yeah. And well, and then to go back to that, like documentary, the one guy that went on the Portugal water waves yeah. and remember he said he got turned around and they flushed <laughs> him up on the beach and he's mm-hmm. like, I thought it was going to die. And then he's like, then I went and he, right like, back yeah, and he's again. like, he does the interviews. Like, I'm going to go back out. Yeah. I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. And that's what it, I mean. It's just like, these guys are just, and of course I don't have that. I, I told Gina, like I can ride a roller coaster. I'm fine. I'm, I don't need any adrenaline in my life. Yeah. Like I'm good enough. Like I, I, you get certain things that like certain things give you adrenaline, but that's not one of them. Yeah. And I just, I saw the skiing and well, the surfing just blows my mind too. But I was looking at least, at least the surfing, like if you were to crash, you at least, I mean, it, I know it's bad, but you at least kind of hit water and you get kind of, although it, it depends, man, but, but that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It depends if you hit rocks. <laughs> I know there's danger, but then I'm looking at the guys that are going up in the mountain now, granted, it's different because I've skied and I haven't been yeah, on, a, on yeah, a surf. Exactly. But you look at these guys going down a mountain like this, and there's rocks, and they're flying off. And yeah. it's like if you fall, you're falling. Where water, at least if you fall, and I, I don't don't get me wrong, like people can get crushed by the waves. But it's like you you still you're not, you're only ninety feet above, and you have surface above you, and you kind of get yeah. brought in. I might be looking at that totally different. Where you know, obviously, people that surf would be like, "You're an idiot!" Like this was way more dangerous. But yeah, it that adrenaline blows my mind. The size of those waves, and then like the the what's it called the, jet ski, uh, jet ski yeah. just like tows them and pulls out of the frame. Well, they're moving too fast to get on themselves. That's the whole point. They need the jet ski because they they just the wave would go right through them basically. Well, underneath. Well, it's when the wave comes down crashing, right. they just escape the yeah. wave. I mean, it's crazy. The I, whole thing is crazy. I, I just I don't. <laughs> and then people are up there watching it and filming it, and I'm like, you guys are are absolutely nuts. Yeah. Um, how? Uh, I want to ask you too, like how. So this this way always when people get into a business like you're you're in obviously chiropractic you went to chiropractic school you did all that and you like the idea of the human body and the movement how have you found it translate to the business aspect of it because again you're running a small business for yeah. you know which I think because I've talked to a couple of people I had um uh well a couple Sam Morris she's a friend of mine she does Irish dancing yep. um, same thing love dancing her whole life mm-hmm. and then opens up a dance studio and then I've known guys that like the gym and they open up a gym and then. So one where you go into business, I don't know. I wouldn't really say it's you like it. I don't know if it's. I guess it'd be a hobby now and passion. But did you take that now and then you added the business element? Have you? Did you find that was an easy trans, transition? Because you talked about the doctors writing scripts and and maybe they like medicine but they didn't like all the paperwork. Right. Like I love real estate. I hate sitting down and doing paperwork. Yeah. It blows like it's just mentally draining and um, I'm just yeah I get I get tired of it. But have you been able to? The, find the business you've been doing it for a while now so i mean obviously you've got yeah. comfortable or found a routine but well it sounds like kind of two two questions in one um i think the first one you were starting to ask was you know did the schooling you know four years of of post-grad you know chiropractic school it did nothing to help me in business yeah it was atrocious and and it really and I, i've spoken to enough students from different schools over the years uh, traveling a little and teaching continuing continuing ed courses i hear the same story that it really is atrocious and and maybe it's easy to blame the schools maybe it is just hard to teach in the little time they have outside of the kind of medical type classes Mm -hmm. to teach how to be successful in business you know marketing and accounting and all these basics Uh, but i i was not prepared at all that was part of the reason i i worked for a couple of different doctors for two years when i graduated i just had no clue was i ready to start my own thing how to do it even if i was ready so that took me two years of kind of research and even when i started it i was certainly not ready um my goal and in hindsight i was smart enough i think 
I won't even say give myself that much credit. I was probably lucky enough um, to really have my overwhelming philosophy with business is to keep my overhead as low as possible. Mm -hmm. It's really easy, especially now compared to 20 years ago to get caught up in technology with some of these new grads and, you know, just getting big oversized clinic space right in the center of a town and paying huge amounts of rent and technology and decking it out with state of the art, this and that. And you just don't need that to get started. And I don't care what your business is in with probably a few exceptions. What I found out I was good at is treating people and getting them better in, in as quick a time as possible. Um, I have a part of it's my own little type of, Hey, kind of OCD. I hate running behind schedule. It really stresses me out beyond all things. And I probably have gotten more compliments over the years for anything. Out of any place I've ever been, you are the best from a medical professional staying on time. Yeah. When I, when I, when I, I hired Tammy in my office, man, my one employee, mm-hmm. um, yeah, a couple of year and a half, two years ago now. And she used to be amazed because she comes from a little more traditional medical, you know, working at different medical offices. And I used to apologize to patients constantly. I say, Hey, sorry to keep you waiting. And, and Tammy goes, you were only like four minutes behind schedule. And yeah. I'm like, well, you know what? I don't like it. I don't yeah. like it. I don't like being kept waiting. I don't double book. And I kind of take pride on that. And, and like I say, patients really, that's, um, that's one of the things I love about you. Well, it's just, yeah. And I've kind of dialed it down to this because when I do these classes on the weekend, I get a certain percentage of students and they kind of have Googled me by then, you know, while I'm talking and they're looking and they say, hey, can I talk to you on the break? I'm like, sure, come on up. And, and they'll say, what, what's your secret? You know, you've been at it now for a while. You've kind of opened and sold a couple different offices over the years and this and that. And I said, you want to, you're not going to like my answer. I said, you've got to be good. You've got to be decent practitioner. You know, you, you can't be a, a, a just a, a, an idiot to lack of a better word. You have to have decent hands, but you don't have to be the best either. You know, you just have to be good enough to provide services mm-hmm. um, and get people better. Number one. But I said, other than that, you want a successful business run on time and don't be a, um, a jerk. Yes, a jerk would be the nice we'll way. I usually, you, yeah. use, I usually use a different you, you, you word. Can, you can swear Starts, on this podcast. Right. You're fine. I, I was going to say, usually I say, run on time and don't be an a-hole. Yeah. That's that's my yeah. that's my success. That's a, All these business people will come to me. What are you talking about, John? I'm like, that's it. Hmm. I have never once in 20 years of practice, I have ever run an advertisement. Mm-hmm. And I basically have been lucky enough to build up a basically a waiting list practice where I'm full. Every day is full. Mm-hmm. Knock on wood. Um, obviously things have been a little different the last three months, but, um, up till now things, things are just full and it's all on word of mouth. And it's not that I'm doing anything spectacular. Um, but again, I run on time. I treat people with respect. Um, I treat them like a human. Um, I speak to them with respect. Um, don't talk down to them. And it's, it's a pretty simple model, but but back to your question was no, none of that came easy. Mm -hmm. It was all just you know, trial and error. But again, if you keep your overhead low, that's more money in my pocket every month. Mm-hmm. So it takes a lot of pressure off to doing things. Maybe that other providers that were a little more desperate for income and revenue mm-hmm. would do things that maybe were a little shady from a marketing perspective, or maybe like, well, I might, maybe I can get them coming back a two more visits and a little, yeah. yeah. And it just, if you can keep the overhead off and say, Hey, I only really need to see 30 patients in a week to cover my overhead, anything over that's just kind of money in my pocket. That takes a, you know, I just made that number up, yeah. but whatever it is, it just, it, that takes a lot of pressure off of doing, getting sucked into kind of dark 
places that yeah. where you question, you start well, looking back after a few years saying, well, this isn't me. Why am I doing this? Like I, I've been to a couple of Kairos before, before, and again, this is about six years, I think now. And that was one of the things, well, actually Gina uh, yeah. referred me to you. And this is before I was with Gina at the yeah. time. So it's just a girl I knew. And, uh, and Gina be my wife now, the, uh, she said the same thing. She goes, John's great, knows his stuff, and he'll get you in on time. Yeah. Meaning basically what you said. And the two things I think you do a great job of is on time, which I'm a huge proponent of because my my schedule is like crazy throughout the day. So when I know I have to just block out 20 to 30 minutes and I'm in and out within that 20 to 30 minutes, I can set up an appointment. Yeah. I literally leave your office and I go to an appointment 15 minutes later. Yeah. And I never, I never worry about, hey, I'm going to be late. No. And I've, so then also, like you said, not talking down, meaning... I, I consider myself, I guess, from a, a, a body human performance level, like a little bit better than the average person. You are. By no, yeah. by no means, like, I didn't go to med school or anything, so I have no clue on, like, the actual term. More like a layman's terms guy. Yeah. But you speak to me in layman's terms. So when you say something, it's like, okay, I understand exactly what you're saying. You, you could use all these fancy lingos on the chin tuck. You're just like, hey, just tuck your chin back. Yeah. You don't have to tell yeah. me all of it. And I just want to know. What do I have to do? Tuck your chin back and it works perfect. I don't yeah. need to know what muscles. I don't need to know all the all the uh, the details. But like you talked about, I've been doing real estate for 10 years. When I first got in, you talked about fancy. I was at my parents' kitchen table yeah. doing real estate. And I would say I'm still pretty low-key. This is my sister's old table. Like yeah. in her, in her, in her uh, in where she used to have her apartment or in college. That desk is one of the agents was her old desk, gave it to me. I can barely fit stuff on it. Like yeah. I'm very low-key when it comes to... Like I spend money on like stuff that I need that like yeah. helps my job, not necessarily the comfort stuff. Um, right. But from a real estate perspective, I would tie it into, like you said, working on people and really knowing what you're doing. Like, yes, I understand the market and everything else. But then how do you become, how do people like using you? Right. I'm consistent with following up, which for you is being on time, meaning I'm, you know, I'll, I'll call people, I'll, I'm, I'm very organized when it comes to my day to day with talking to people. And then number two is I'm just nice to people. Like I don't, I don't yeah. pressure people to buy. I'm just like, Hey, right. you like the house or not? I don't great. Find another home. Oh, you like it? Cool. Let's make an offer. And I think that like laid back approach and, but laid back from a personality standpoint. And then like you said, type a meaning on time on yes. schedule. Like I live by my calendar and not missing appointments, not moving, not canceling on people. I think that goes a long ways also. It, and it doesn't make me better it doesn't, I'm not more skilled than other people. I'm more organized than a lot of people yes. and I'm more diligent about keeping on track. Um, yeah. but I think just by doing those, that to me, that's like human one-on-one where you yeah. just translate it into your business. And then it's funny how that works and it makes you, you know, it makes you do well, but especially in a smaller town, um, yeah. uh, you know, and, and just to step back a little bit, what you said, the, the, the biggest issue with it's a personal kind of eh, battle is a strong word, but a, a personal uh, strong held opinion of mine. Um, the chiropractic profession is is a, a tough one sometimes because we almost eat our own young too much. You know, we go back when I was in school 20 years ago. All you ever heard about was this battle between chiropractic and medical doctors, chiros and MDs, and, and we're going kind of head to head and talking, you know, MDs were kind of shooting down the profession, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for completely wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. But the last 10 or 12 years, I have more issues within my own profession about difference in philosophies and some of the stuff I hear being done by chiropractors and just their what they're doing and what they're making their patients do. 
And even in this town, you know, I'm not saying uh, bad mouthing anything. It's just a completely different philosophy of how to practice. A lot of docs in this area are a little more, I'd call old school kind of chiropractic, traditional based chiropractic, Mm -hmm. where the adjustment is everything. Crick crack, you're out the door. And I'm not joking, sometimes two minutes, three minutes. Mm -hmm. And this real, real pressure that if you're not getting adjusted every week or two, this is going to happen to you, or that's going to happen to you. You're going to degenerate. You're going to have other, none of that has a stitch of research behind it. You know, it's, it's, it's just none of it. Now I treat a lot of people, yourself included, you know, quote unquote maintenance care. I have tons of athletes that they just like every few weeks, they pop in, get their hips worked out, do a little soft tissue work, get an adjustment. Just when you're logging 80, 90 mile weeks, Mm -hmm. stuff gets stiff, stuff gets locked up, Mm -hmm. but never once have I ever pressured a patient to come back. Mm -hmm. I want them to come back, you know, but my goal is, and it's, it's funny, it's a stupid business model. When you think about it, I want to get someone better in as few as visits as possible. That's it. And if you look at my average for simple cases that come in, I threw my back out, uh, lifting something out of the trunk, or I hurt my back lifting the baby out of the crib, or my, uh, you know, my knee bugged me after I, I did a stupid long run longer than I should have mm-hmm. is typically two to five visits. I want to see them better and free to go within. Th- I always tell people, you give me three to six treatments. First visit, I say, you give me three to six treatments. You're either going to be better or you're not. And if you're not better in five, six visits, well, we're going to get you somewhere else. Mm-hmm. This isn't working. If what I'm going to do is going to work, it's going to work in two or three or four visits, 95, you know, 96% of the time, period. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I think part of the problem is a lot of times I spend new patients come in, I spend that have been other chiropractors and I end up spending more of the visit kind of de-educating them from what they may have heard to what the research and, and kind of recent research kind of shows and, and say, hey, no, 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 you don't need to always come in here and see me. I'm always here if you need me. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's what you need to do and kind of try to put it into the patient's hand to self-care for most of the stuff. Yeah. So that you don't need every time you say, well, I did something stupid. I shouldn't have, shouldn't have been weeding for nine straight hours the first nice day of the year and now I'm a little stiff in the back. Well, hey, I remember John told me, let me try this and this for a day or two and see if it works itself out. If it doesn't, give me a call. Yeah. You know, but it's, it's just, yeah, it's frustrating sometimes. Well, and I, so Mike, when I was a kid, I used to go to the Cairo with my dad, like yep. once, a, oh, maybe once a month. I, yep. I was little, so I don't remember how frequent it was, but then I got away from it for years mm-hmm. and I didn't come back to it until I had, I think I had. It was my no, no first thing was migraines. Yes. So I had migraines. So I went to a place, migraines were fine. Yeah. Uh, was this wasn't you, it was other other place. It was fine, like whatever. Um one, two things I didn't like was I had to wait because yeah. and it was like triple booked and you got in and it was like yeah. three days a week. And I'm like, I don't have yeah. time to go three days a week. Right. So whatever that we did that, then it came back, then I had my shoulder issue and I told Gina and she goes, Go see John. And then I think I told you about migraines. So I used to get I used to get migraines, I'd say a few times a year. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time I went in, you just did like basically one treatment. And I was like, do I have to come back in a couple? Because I didn't know what to do. I was yeah, like, right. do I come back in a couple? No, you're like, no, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. I'm like, yeah. okay, that's cool. And I didn't know the difference. And then, uh, but it was, again, you were, to me, you were actively treating it yes. more than just like going in and just cracking my neck and then yeah. seeing you. It was like, you know, I would say a normal I probably spend a solid ten minutes with you at least. Yeah. Now with you know the massage with, stuff we've got with yeah, with Wayne, maybe, maybe a little bit longer with him. But yep. it's it's usually you go in and it's a 
it's a treatment. It's yeah. not like you just go in and like you're like, hey, Galen, crack, crack, see ya. No, but so, I also, yeah, and I also don't, I, I kind of pride myself, I don't have, I'm not putting you on 15 different machines that have questionable yeah. effectiveness, you know, like the stem. There's time and a place occasionally for those, but research really is pointing toward aggressive, and not, not bad aggressive, but just manual medicine. Mm-hmm. Find what's tight, loosen it up, give you two or three recommendations to try to keep it loose or to strengthen it. Boom, done. And the problem with that quick rack'em, crack'em kind of historical, so what a lot of people think of chiro, just go in, crick, two minutes, crick, crack, done, mm-hmm. is in my opinion, you're missing at least half the problem. If you're not at least addressing what the muscles are doing, what the fascia, the connective tissue and stuff is doing, you can adjust. But And that's, I think, why with a lot of those type of practitioners, People feel like they need to go back three times a week, two times a week, because they're only getting part of the problem every time you go in. Yeah. And so that that's always been my philosophy. Is now I can't see people, and I wouldn't want to see people in two or three minutes. You know, I see people, and I mean, my my return visit appointments are twenty minutes. They're, that's yeah. what they're scheduled for. And so, you know, I, I'm going to see you for if it's a simple case, maybe it's just ten or twelve or thirteen well, minutes. Other I'm, times, I'm maybe it's twenty. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I just want to get. To be honest, just get a little like, and, and the, the biggest thing that you do besides like, I like the hip thing. And then a lot of it's just working on my neck. The muscles. And, yeah. And and again, I, my wife does, is a massage therapist, but she, it's kind of one where you just, people think you get massages all the time. You don't. Cause one, yeah. I, one, partly it's me. I don't actually really pressure her. And then two, which is fair. I mean, I have lacrosse balls. I have, I have a lot of, we have a lot of like stuff around the house. Yeah. Like she has a blade. She has all those things, which I don't use. I, I don't, I've used the blades before on like little small things, you know, that I can reach, but uh, foam roller, lacrosse ball, a lot of those things. Um, I have kind of like those hip circle things. Yeah. A lot of times I use just to warm up. And a lot of that to me is I can self, I do a lot of self yeah. maintenance prior to asking her. Like if I have her do something, it's because yeah. everything I've done is kind of, I, I take a fair stab at it first. Usually that's when I go in and see you. Like if I have something that's really bothering me, I'm usually on a lacrosse ball or a foam yeah. roller working on it. And then it's kind of like, okay, I need a little bit more attention or I mean, granted, I, I'm not saying to do it every single day. And I'm, no, no, but, but it, it's like for right now, I, I know I have like a, was it the, uh, what's that little, is it, it's like a three letter acronym kind of thing. Oh, the TFL. Yes. Tensor fascia lata. So the, yeah. that TFL is one where my hip starts hurting, which typically goes down my IT band. It's, yep. and 90% of the time it's just taken. I can already feel it like right now, just putting my hand there. If I put a little cross ball there and just let it kind of sit in and work its way into that, it loosens up. And then eventually my IT band kind of just relaxes yep. and, it's all the same band of connective tissue. But that's and, where I would hit it, right? Is that's right. T- so that's... It's one of the top three most common things I see. And the reason is is sitting. Yeah. We just sit too much. All of us. I mean, yeah. even if you're an active person, going out and you know, going for a run for an hour, three or four days a week does not undo uh, the frightening number of hours most of us, even active people, sit a day. Yeah. And when you sit, the fronts of those hips are kept in their shortest possible positions day after day, week after week. And yeah, it's yeah. a problem. I got to get better doing more of like the, uh, like the lunge cat was it couch stretch, lunge stretch. Yeah, yeah. I guess they're doing more of those, but like I just started getting a little pain there and same thing. Like when you squat yeah. down, it's like, Ooh, okay, that's, I can feel it. But yeah. then I just take that lacrosse ball and just kind of wedge it in there. I got to tell you the standing, the standing desks, I, I think, if possible, that the prices really come down to make them reasonable. I've, I've got, got a lot of employees. I got the ones right there, which yeah. that, that rises up. That's it's right. not a true standing desk. It's like a no, platform no, no. that goes on it. But, that's all That's all yeah. I have. I just ordered one for just a laptop size one because yep. that's what I use at the office. And, you know, my uh, my office manager, Tammy, uses one. Um, you know, there's a, there's a catchphrase the last couple of years with, with posture. 
because standing all day isn't necessarily ideal either. Mm -hmm. And, and the phrase you hear bouncing around sometimes is, is the best posture is the next posture, meaning we actually do best with variability. So I always tell people, or just stand, stand for an hour or two, then sit for an hour or two or stand for an hour, sit for an hour and just kind of rotate it. So one of those cheap, you know, for a couple hundred bucks, you can get those little standing desks that just mount. They just sit right on top of your existing table. Mm -hmm. Works great. Um, Works, works absolutely great. We just got to move around a little more. Um, I also bought out to show you it's, it's in, it's behind that, I believe behind that picture frame and it's like, a. Maybe it's right behind, eh, somewhere the, back there. No, the black. Oh, can you see it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's a big mat, and it has kind of like a half foam rollers kind of ribbed on yeah. it, a little like half like a half ball kind of thing. So, I again, I've been bad at using it. Um, the, my old office, I used it all the time because I pulled up from underneath the desk. Yep. Um, but basically, I would, I would stand on it. I have a lacrosse ball on my... my roll uh, your foot. I, I roll it on the bottom of my foot, yep. even when I'm sitting, just for like the, the, the planner, right? Or the fascia. Planner, planner fascia. fascia, yeah, you're right. So I just roll it on the bottom of my foot. Um, so I have a lacrosse ball. I used to have a foam roller here, but I took it home. I got a yoga mat, too. I was doing yoga here for a yep. while. So like, there's just little things I do to try to loosen up because and i know that's one of the topics i think we talked about was or you you like talking about is just like office maintenance yeah or like office i guess mobility because mm-hmm. i i saw something the other day which i don't think it was kind of an exaggeration but it said sitting's the new smoking but it's yeah. it, it's it's in the same wavelength in the sense that it's not good for you um, right but I, I think so i guess talk about that if you're like working at a desk because i know a lot of people that listen to this don't adhere to this kind no. of stuff I'm sure. So, and, and no one cares until they start to hurt. Mm-hmm. That's that's the problem. Is their setup's always perfect until it isn't. You know. So um, now the other thing that you do is you work for Rock Tape. Yeah. So kind of go into that. Like, what was? How'd you get into it? What do you do for Rock Tape? Um, and kind of talk about the different courses that you teach with that because they're pretty cool. Because I've seen yeah. you. I guess. Yeah. So I, as I mentioned a few times, I've got this bug for travel. Um, it's been a priority of mine. I wish it had been a priority even a little younger. I, I probably, if I would have had my druthers to use an old word, I probably would have taken a year or two after college or before college and kind of traveled the world when I could have done it super cheap. Um, I don't live fancy. I, you know, I drive my old used Honda Civic, uh, live in a three bedroom house here in the city. And I just, about 10 years ago, I just made the decision that um, any extra money that I had was going to be toward travel, you know? So a few years ago, I finally started taking a two week vacation every summer, uh, not this summer, yeah. first time in three or four years. And, um, I, I just, again, I wish I would have done it sooner. So to tie into your question, I I'm always looking for an excuse to get out of Dodge. <laughs> um, you know, Plattsburgh can be great, but Plattsburgh can also be, um, a little confining at times if you're a little adventurous spirit sometimes like I have I, I, I sometimes if I'm getting a little grouchy my wife has been known to comment over the years she goes do you have a trip coming up because you know I just get a little stir crazy in one place too long um, so I was I, I've always been interested in teaching um, lecturing whatever and I had done it occasionally years ago and it just happens I was down in Florida giving a, a three or four hour continuing education talk to the Florida chiropractic annual seminar and I walked out and and this uh, woman from rock tape now rock tape is um, a sports medicine kind of supply company they make kinesiology tape uh, you know the colored tape you see on practically all the athletes now if you watch sports on TV that's where they started now they've branched into making other massage tools they make uh, rehab equipment um, all, all kinds of different stuff 
Um, so one of the, I turns out one of the education leaders for rock tape happened to be in just watching in the back of the room as I did my lecture and she goes, Hey, can I buy you dinner? And I said, uh, sure. So she, we, we talked over dinner and she said, I love your style. You're, you're an athlete yourself and still, still an athlete or trying to be, um, I think you'd be a good fit in our culture. And so I got on, that was six and a half years ago. And at wow. the time when I started teaching rock tape weekends, I want to say there were only maybe eight or 10 instructors nationally that rock tape was using. And basically what we do is we go and teach other medical professionals how to use these tools, how to tape properly, how to use the instrument, the massage blades, the, uh, you know, how to use uh, cupping, how to use compression wrap. And now basically there's, there's four weekend courses that I teach. Um, God, there's probably 20 or 30 instructors now. It's grown so much. Um, and it's basically 12-hour weekends. So it's six-hour classes on Saturday, six-hour classes Sunday on one of these four topics where I am lecturing to a room of uh, anyone from you know, chiropractors, physical therapists, occupational therapists, massage therapists, um, acupuncture, really anyone in the medical field that wants to learn how to use these tools. Mm -hmm. um, so before the COVID stuff, you know, I was teaching for the last six years, I was averaging 20 to 25 weekends a year I was teaching all over the country, wow. um, which is why I'm only usually in my office three, three and a half days a week, um, because I'm basically flying every other weekend. Um, and I like it. it gets old. Trust me, if you're doing like five, six weekends in a row flying mm -hmm. um, it, and working a regular job during the week, it definitely grows old. So I'm try I've been trying the last year or two to find a little better pace. Um, for my teaching, but it's, it's nice. I mean, even when you're going to a place that doesn't on the surface seem interesting, I, I'm always pleasantly surprised, you know, like I, I mean, for instance, I've been down to three times for some reason over the last two years, I've been to Fort Wayne, Indiana. Now, no offense to Fort Wayne. Um, never really thought about Fort Wayne before. And you go in and it's like this typical surprise Midwestern city of like a hundred and something thousand people legit skyscraper downtown and now i've been a few times so i know a couple of cool restaurants a couple places to grab a good beer yeah. I'm, I'm always traveling by myself so yeah I, i'm usually walking around just sightseeing in towns and it, it's a great way to see the world do so when you typically fly in at some point get there friday evening so you'd have yeah. pretty much friday evening saturday evening yep. and then fly out sunday try to fly out friday because now you know with travel god knows now but uh, even before all the COVID stuff, you know, you never knew when you're going to get delayed or mm -hmm. bumped or canceled. So I try to fly out sometime Friday morning. You, depending if I'm going west or staying on the east coast, I, yeah, I'd usually arrive in the city sometime Friday between you know noon and dinner time. Mm -hmm. um, and then yeah, check into the hotel, rent a car in a lot of cases, drive to the hotel, check in, try to find a late dinner, uh, relax, and then yeah, get up real early. Used to teach from basically get at the venue by 7 a.m. Class from eight to three with an hour for lunch do the same thing sunday and then the mad rush at three o'clock to find a fedex drop store to drop the supply boxes off to ship back to rock tape oh, yeah. on the way to the airport drop the rental car and then usually sprinting through security to try to catch the last flight home on a sunday night so you get home like evening sunday evening <laughs> no sunday night usually night. late so yeah. and especially with burlington you know i can't tell you how many speed limit pushings i've done from the ferry to or from the airport to the last ferry you know at like midnight to, before you sit in your car for 40 minutes waiting for the yeah. next ferry yeah um yeah it's not or oftentimes i got my nexus card for the canadian border years yeah. and years and years ago um so i would say i fly out of montreal eight times out of ten now 
Really? Uh, yeah. Okay. It's just better options, better connections. And with my Nexus card, I don't have to deal with the border. You, you were the one that told us to get a Nexus card. It's fantastic. Yeah. Not to get, yeah. Now I don't know when you're going to be able to get one again. But We've only used it a couple times, but both kids have one now. Yeah. So really our whole family, if we go up, we're good. Um, so from, uh, so I guess from, uh, yeah, so Rock Tape, um, did you have to read, when you learned all the stuff, did you learn it all in one shot? Like same thing? Like when she, when she approached you six and a half years yeah. ago, were you already kind of in the Rock Tape space? I was using rock tape. I had been, I had taken a different brand, uh, education brand of t- taping uh, course years and years and years ago as a new grad, uh, Kinesio tape mm-hmm. was the original Kinesio tape maker. Um, so I had been in that field taping people, um, and had been using rock tape. But at the time, six years ago, that's all, that's the only course they taught mm-hmm. was taping. Um, so the first couple of years, that's the only course I was teaching for them a bunch of times a year. And then over the last four years, they've each year they've added, new courses to where well, we are now well, like gina when she she always asks can i take this course yeah. i'm like take all this like if it's getting you better it's and it's tools it's, in the toolbox man. yeah and it's, it's like all I, it is because I, I do the same for real estate like if a course here a course there if i think i'm going to get right. just a little bit better I'll, I'll take it so and you don't i tell people you know you don't have to take you're going to be with me for the next 12 hours this mm-hmm. weekend if you can get two or three key pullaways yep that you can have in your toolbox particularly if you work with athletes that's what i've said over the years is Athletes can just smell a, a BSer a mile away. They mm-hmm. just can because most of them, especially the elite athletes, have been worked on by dozens of people as they travel. You know, there's yeah. this and there's this and there's this. And you better at least be proficient because they will ask you to do stuff to them. They know what works for them. You know, mm-hmm. I got someone coming through town. They're like, hey, I need you to use the blades on my calf and I'd love if you could tape me after. Okay. Yeah. You better know how to do that. So you, do you get a lot of random drop-ins like that? No, Every not a ton. I mean... You probably can't fit them in, to be honest. Well, no, no, no. I usually make a... a, a as busy as I am, I usually, for an athlete, and I tell all, all my, my regular patients that I go, if you ever... I am busy. Mm-hmm. I said, if you ever check my online schedule and don't see an opening within a day or two, just call. We always yeah. have a cancellation list. And if not, I usually, nine times out of 10, I can stay late and jam you. Well, you, you've gotten me in before if I've had like yeah. a real bad neck or migraine, you'll like get me in with next day. Like I'll just run in for like five minutes and you work yeah. on it fast. And- I've had a few, not really random, they've scheduled or I've had a couple of people from out of town like again this is not in the last three or four months but uh a friend from jersey or something would say hey i've got this uh you know olympic uh swimmer Mm -hmm. that trains with me she's vacationing or on her way up through to canada for some reason can she schedule an appointment can you take a look at her but unfortunately there isn't a lot around here you know i mean we are pretty isolated in the grand scheme of things not that it can't be a great i mean look at this today you know lake 85 no humidity what do we get like you know historically about five of these a year yeah, yeah um so it's 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 tough and it's, it's one thing that i've always been a little i'm getting better as i get older but when i was a little younger i was always a little jealous when i'd travel to these seminars because i'd i'd see some colleagues that work with professional sports teams mm-hmm. um and in some cases they're not even that good not to toot my own horn i just it, the thing with pro sports, and you'd like to think it would be the opposite, that these pro teams with, with literally hundreds of millions of dollars and, and contracts to, to protect, that they would have just researched the heck out of anyone who's coming in contact with these athletes. And in a lot of cases, it's just not true. It's alarming who ends up working for these professional sports teams. Yeah. And a lot of times it's pure proximity that, you know, Joe Cairo or Joe physical therapist just happens to have a clinic where the team practices and one or two athletes kind of stumble in on their own and then word spreads and i'll say hey can you just come into the locker room and work on us on the- some random guy on the it, staff exactly works there and he's like oh my guy's good I'm exactly like- and that's that's really the foot in the door with 
pro sports is, is and we are just so far from any pro sports pro, pro sports i think would be hard though because like you said if they're playing a regular season or you have to travel or i'm, I'm assuming you if you're with pro sports you'd almost be like on I say on staff but you'd be paid by them where they'd be like we need you here these days and that day yeah. which for you that could screw up your i say screw up your practice oh there would be no practice yeah you would, you would have a hard time it'd yeah. be like your full-time gig so i had a good friend uh three or four years ago at the peak of the warriors run in the nba mm-hmm. the curry you know they, they won the championship and they were right now i think it was 2015 so right in the peak of that record-breaking win season yep and she was an Australian girl that I had met in Australia one of the trips over there teaching. And she ended up, they overhauled their whole athletic training staff. And she was named head physical therapist um, for the Golden State Warriors. And so I had emailed her a few times just asking how things were going. I saw her on the sidelines a couple of times. And I said, oh, I know, yeah, I know who that is. And, and so I emailed her. And it's a crazy schedule. I mean, you think about because that's she full time uh-huh. with the small staff. So your road games and home games, uh, what are they up to? Eighty two games a year. Yeah. So it's you know three a week on so average. She travels with the team. It's full time with the team. So wow. basically, from they would get a month off, and particularly long, if you got a team going deep into the playoffs. So basically, that, that for yeah. that five July, six year maybe. run, they're they're into at least the end of June. So basically, her off season was like mid July to mid end of August. And then she's on the road again for preseason camp starting in September. And so it's, you know, 82 games, then the playoffs. Now, you know, I think she made decent money. I never would have asked her. I just, I've known a few other people working for pro teams. The money is decent. You got to question how good it is though. When you look at how long away from home you are. Yeah. And the, but the payoff comes in the playoffs. So what they have is basically this um, lump sum of money. And the more you ma- you make more bonus money, the more deeper into the playoffs you go. So you're the biggest fan. So the, I, I remember the, the guy I talked with on the phone from the Warriors, and he said the previous athletic trainer, the year they went to the finals, I think he said he made like 125 grand as head trainer bonus oh, just geez. from the playoff run, making winning the finals, wow. which was more than his actual salary was for the regular season. So, you know, I guess the payoff is kind of like a lotto if you end up with a team that goes yeah. deep. But, yeah, it's interesting. I, I think football would probably be, in a way, the easiest just from a travel perspective because they're yeah. only playing eight, nine, basically nine away games a year Yeah, um, if you lived in a big city. But, yeah, at some point. I always it, dreamed, I think, I think my dream gig would be either uh, getting on the PGA Tour with a, with a player. I would love that, yeah. Well, just from a pure weather, they're just going from one beautiful spot to the next. Um, or triathlon. Triathlon's just like, well, it's, they're, in, well, they're in Australia, now they're in you know the Como. Philippines, they're in yeah. Spain, they're in... Yeah, so these good weather sports. I'm sick. I, too many years working at 20 below in the middle of, on the top of a bobsled track at 7 a.m. is... Uh, is gotten a little old, so I think I'm going to try to gear toward the warm weather sports. Well, well, I absolutely love golf. So, like, and I grew up loving golf even more. So, the PGA Tour. If someone asked me what professional sport you would want to play, I always said the PGA Tour because yeah. now, granted, you pick your own schedule within reason because there's some guys that have to play every week to survive, right. you know. But there's the better players; they pick and choose and sponsorships. But then you're pretty much your own. Like, I love team sports, but there's also the element of, like, you can just kind of run your show, yep. like, run your schedule. So, yep. like, same thing. You show up and, you know, you can work on athletes or work on the golfers behind the scenes kind of thing. And, again, for most of those guys, it's just some realignment. But the thing with golf is 
I know some people like, is it a sport or not? I mean, now it's on the point where you can't, I don't think, I think it's hard to argue it's not a sport yeah, based on how physically act, like yep. fit some of those guys are. But you talk about they're going from a static position where they're completely coiled to this huge kinetic like yeah. release of energy, typically around a knee, a hip. Like those are your kind of points of That's right. your, your pivot points or whatever. And to be able to hit a golf ball, and I've seen, I've been to actually quite a few professional golf tournaments and to watch these guys, and when you talk about the the, mile, or the the marathon runner, golf to me is the most like baseball is pretty impressive because they hit a fat like hit a mm-hmm. ball being thrown at them. But golf, how good those guys are hitting a golf ball is yeah. insane because every shot I take the best shots I've ever hit in my life, the most purest yeah. shots I've ever hit. If I could like count a couple of those off. Off the top of my head, that's every shot for them. Yeah, and it's absolutely insane. It's and it's the. Cons- I'm not a golfer. Um, I, I know the biomechanical requirements of the sport, but I'm not a golfer. Um, the the it's the consistency with those guys, among other things. That that even the top like area amateurs that are winning some of the local club championships here that might be scratch or you know maybe a four handicap or something is they're really good. But they've got plenty of bad shots in a, in a round or over the course of a few rounds on a week where a lot of those guys just don't. They're consistent. So a little aside, which I always find, because this just came up in my office on Thursday. I had an older gentleman, had really hurt his back. I forget how, but hurt his back a couple of weeks ago doing something stupid. Hadn't, you know, he's a uh, just a, a, loves golf. Like he is out, retired guy this summertime around here. He is out five, six days a week minimum. And it was, it's been killing him for two weeks. He's just been in too much pain. He didn't even dare swing a club. I asked him. So I saw him Thursday. He's doing a lot better. You know, a little bit of pain, stiffness, but not, nothing severe. And he goes, uh, he goes, Doc, do you think it's okay if I, I'm supposed to play golf tomorrow? I'm, I'm a little nervous. I'm like, no, go ahead. Just warm up really well. Do the things we talked about. If you got any sharp pain, just bail. Yeah. Um, and I would recommend walking. You know, get out of the cart and actually walk the course. You know, it's great for the back. Okay, okay. So I followed up with him a couple of, I guess that was Tuesday. I followed up with him Thursday um, just because I knew he was playing Wednesday. And I said, uh, how'd you play? Did you finish? He goes, yeah. He goes, and this is, the, this is my point. I hear, I've heard this story a hundred times over the years. And guys are so stupid sometimes and stubborn because I go, how'd you play? He goes, back felt pretty good, a little tight at first, but really felt good. I go, how'd you play more importantly? And he goes, it's the best round I've played in like three years. And I said, okay, why do you think that is? What did you do differently? And what do you think his answer did he was? Walk? No, well, he walked, yes, but okay. actually, his swing itself with it coming well, off a bad back. Yeah, he, 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 didn't, he, he basically went about 78% exactly. of what he normally swings. He, he yeah. basically was half swinging out of caution. And guess what? He was hitting the ball straight as an arrow every time. Yeah. And I've, like I said, hundreds of times I've had this same response where a guy's coming off back pain. They're swinging 70%, have the best round of their life, and then within two weeks, they start trying to crush the ball again, yep. and they're right back to square one. And just if you just slow everything down, yeah, you'll lose 20, 30 yards, but it'll be straight every time or most times. I don't know. We're it's, stubborn. Well, that, that's that's it. And I, again, for how many years I've played golf, it's like you still get in the habit of trying to kill a golf ball. And it's like really all it is is how smooth and just like turning into everything just has to be, again, a kinetic kind of like – it goes yep. like do 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 do, and then you hit the ball. Yeah. Um, 
And the, the, it's funny. Yeah. Well, it's, the problem is, and, and particularly the people I see in my office, just to kind of bring it around full circle with golf, there's, there's a huge injury rate with recreational golfers. Oh, yeah. I mean, not up in the recreational runner territory, but it's still high. And where do you typically see these um, men and women injured? Is It's either their low backs, typically, or it's their knees. Mm-hmm. And the reason is there's a, there's a philosophy with with basic human function that's called the joint by joint approach, and and it's been around for a few decades, um, not by me. Um, a guy by the name of Gray Cook and Mike Boyle kind of came up with this philosophy that basically the bodies, the joints of the body, alternate needs joint by joint from the ground up, meaning. What do they need to do primarily to function properly? Mm-hmm. Do they need to be mainly mobile joints, joints that can oh. m- be loose and move through a range of motion smoothly? Or is it a part of the body that really needs to be more stable and strong and stiff? Mm-hmm. And it's just funny, but the body alternates those joint by joint from the ground up. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, the ankle. The ankle needs to be, oddly enough, people mix this up because they always think of ankle sprains. But the ankles needs to be a mobile joint, mainly dorsiflexion. So flexing, pointing and flexing the toes and ankle up and down. Yep. Um, the knee actually is not designed to move excessively. It should be kind of a stable joint. Mm-hmm. Getting to golf, the hips need to be mobile. The lumbar spine, the lower back needs to be stable. Most low back injuries are happen when the body moves excessively the lumbar spine is loaded excessively through a range of motion Mm -hmm. and everything locks up and seizes up on you so now you take your average you know maybe a little overweight Mm -hmm. just just occasionally here in the north country Mm -hmm. you got a little 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 belly on you you yeah uh a a beer belly um he's you know they sit all day long and now they're you know 58 62 years old and sit all winter and do nothing mm-hmm. and then come the first warm day in april or early may they're out there swinging the club you know literally 100 plus miles an hour mm-hmm. now most likely they have zero hip mobility you just check like their rotation of their hips internal external rotation they've got none yet they're swinging the hell out of the golf club so where are they getting that rotation from that they should be getting from the hips well guess what they're going to get it from the joint above or the joint below the hips, which are what? So the low knee. back and the knee. And so you'll see people either with low back pain or knee pain, and it's nothing to do with their back or their knee in a lot of cases. It's their lack of hip mobility. So if you're going to give one tip to particularly the aging or uh, really casual golfer that doesn't swing a ton six months a year is work on hip mobility. You know, And you can just Google hip mobility drills or exercises for golfers, and you'd probably find 7,000 of them pick three or four and just try working them a little bit yeah and i've seen um some like there, there's some pro golf things now if you go on and look and, yep. and some of the stuff the pros do and it's it's pretty crazy a lot of those guys go to the gym now because well you look at look at them i mean other than um you know there's a few still kind of old school souls i can yeah. see walking around yeah. but most of that i mean you look at tiger you look at rory you look at well and even now what's his name we just Brooks won Kepka. uh kepka but the uh uh, Bryson, uh, just oh, one yeah. yesterday. I mean, now, granted, he's not caring too much about body fat either, but he just straight up said, I'm going to gain 40 pounds and see it. And all of a sudden it averaged, you know, what, 40 yards to his drive or something ridiculous. He, he's the first golfer. I I didn't realize he won because I saw it yeah. a little bit on Saturday. He's the first golfer I've ever known that has put weight on, like, a, let's say, like a football player. Yeah, yeah. And if you watch him swing, the funny thing is when you watch him swing, his swing isn't as nice because he's a little bulkier yeah. now. But he's driving the ball consistently like 340, 350, yeah. which is absolutely insane. Well, and you, I forget the numbers, but you can't beat 
pure mass mm -hmm. when you're talking about creating power sometimes. Mm -hmm. yes, yeah. yes, it's a combination of speed as well. Um, but it really is, it, it just, it's so advantageous to be big and strong, even if some of that weight is fat yeah. uh, in certain events. The other one that always hit me is, I, I forget, I read this quote by a baseball therapist last year, and I, I'm guessing, but I'm not far off. He basically posted this thing on Instagram that said, if you look at the top, I forget if it was 20 or 25 um, uh, Hall of Fame pitchers, mm -hmm. okay? Um, you know, you, Clemens, Nolan Ryan, all the big suit, and even the current guys like uh, Kershaw, mm -hmm. um, Baumgartner, this guy. Like all but two or three were 220 pounds or heavier Yeah, when they played. Pedro was probably the smallest. Well, you got, they're the outliers. Yeah. Pedro and Greg Maddox. Yeah. Um, but a lot of times too, Randy short, Johnson was short, huge. huge. Yeah. Um, but a lot of times with these guys, they're short in careers because they're, they're basically arming everything and they can be freaks of the freaks like Pedro. Mm -hmm. Um, but a lot of times end up breaking down physically or lose what got him there yeah. quicker than these guys. Like, I mean, look at the epitome is Nolan Ryan. Mm -hmm. He playing into his mid forties, still throwing high nineties yeah. and really relatively injury free for the majority of his career. Um, so just, you get, you lump him in with Bryce in there. It's just, you can't, I, the, the guy's point of his post was, you know, Hey, parents of aspiring, uh, major league pitchers. Yes. Get them in the weight room, but don't forget to feed them, you know, like eat, eat and eat some more. Well, so my Gina's cousin is a good baseball player, um, locally and the same thing. He, he was like one of those just typical tall, lanky, athletic kids, mm -hmm. no muscle to him at all. And I think he gained like 25 pounds from last year to this year. Well, he was a very good basketball player. He's going to go play, I don't know, whatever division level it mm -hmm. is, but baseball, but that's the, that's his thing. And I remember his parents like asking me and I was like, so that kid should just be eating everything in sight. Yeah. And I said, give him milkshakes every night. I yeah. said, who cares? Because at the end of the day, he's got to put weight on. And yeah. he was doing that. I mean, I think he got some, you know, masking or shakes and stuff. But um, like my own sake, I was, I think in January, back in October, I went a bunch of weeks without going to the gym. And I think I told you this yeah. back in October, or back in the fall. So it was like, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to start working out again, start watching what I eat. Well, from October to January, I just, I felt great. I was eating enough. I leaned out. I was down to like 160 or 165, which is too yeah. light for me. Yeah. Right now, I think I'm almost 200 because I've just been trying to gain weight over the yeah. basically quarantine. But it was like, I, I've just been doing, um, it was more like just powerlifting, just like, like benching, squatting, oh. deadlifting, and pressing and just eating to gain strength back because I had just gotten to the point where I was just much lighter than I ever was yeah. in the last mm -hmm. 10 years. And, uh, so the same thing, like putting mass on like my, you know, putting on probably 30 pounds worth of weight. And I, again, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'm actually 30, but around that, you know, yeah. been, but I've been diligent about trying to gain weight and it's tough to eat enough. So I've been drinking yeah. a lot of shakes, but the difference between me at 160 versus now, and ideally, I'll start leaning out back to probably about one mid one eighties, but that's like a really good weight for me versus yeah one sixty. I was way too little. Like it's a it's a conversation I have a lot in the office is is you know nutrition. What 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 way should I be? You know, just their casual conversation while I'm working on people that yeah. come up. Like, what do you do? What kind of diet do you follow? What is this? What is, what do you think of this? What do you think of intermittent fasting? What do you think of these running shoes? Keto you know, and all the buzzwords. Yeah, yeah, and and I say it's it's it, there's very little wrong. They're just varying degrees of right yeah. is a phrase I use when I teach a lot. You know, um, as long as you are keeping kind of some core fundamental concepts together, the question I ask the people is, what is your goal? 
You know, what is your goal? You know, and, and because people just hear this crap all the time, you know, they're being bombarded with just this nonsense from magazines and Internet and Dr. Google and all this stuff. And I just ask, what is your goal? Because that's all that really matters. If your goal is I didn't like the way I felt, I was getting sick all the time at 160 and I just felt weak and tired walking mm-hmm. upstairs. I, my own goal for the next two months in your case or three months, I'm just going to try to put on 15 or 20 pounds. Mm-hmm. Now, does do the ca- the type of calories matter for those two or three months? Maybe not. I don't know. No. I can't answer for you. But no, they're bad. You know, and not that you want to be eating Twinkies and ice cream, but if you're eating fairly clean and and you don't usually maybe you do a little low carb sometimes, and, and all of a sudden now you're eating more you know few nights of pasta a week, then mm-hmm. maybe that's not a big deal if that's the goal. The the one I hear all the time is people usually around you know here is is losing weight. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, man, I just can't lose those, you know, 30, 40 pounds. And I said, well, what, what are you eating in it? What's a typical day? Yeah. And with all the good intentions, they're having like four or five servings of fruit a day. Now, I'm like, I'm not one to tell you that fruit is necessarily inherently bad for you. There's yeah. certainly some so, good stuff. But a lot of sugar. if your goal is to lose body weight, then fruit, especially five servings or four bananas a day, probably isn't the best to reach your goal, you know, yeah. and say, hey, maybe one serving of berries that's a little lower in the you know yep. the simple Plus sugars and yeah and just you know keep it and and so it's, anyway it's just there's not right or wrong it just really depends on what you're shooting for i know it works for me and i'm pretty extreme in that way yeah um but i've I th- I, i've self-experimented for the last 10 years on I, me i think if you have anybody that know that has an interest in losing or gaining weight it's i don't think it's that hard to do if you make it a habit and just kind of make it like you like if you wanted to lose weight, if you understand how to lose weight and what to eat correctly, and you make it a habit to do so, you're, you, you'll be fine. Like you'll be able to keep your yeah. weight off. I think it's the people that want to lose weight; they just don't know what to do. Well, that's it, and that's that's yes. Yeah, just got to watch the TV shows. I mean, there's there's series after oh. series of this where yeah. people it's just bad information for a million yeah. reasons. Maybe they don't want to hear it, but a lot of times it's just they're given well, wrong information. Like I, have, I have friends that like I'm on the keto diet. I know people yeah. are like I'm on the keto diet. I'm like you're on the keto diet for two weeks until you want to have something normal. Yep. And I said, my, the way I've always looked at food is like, I'm going to eat good food. I'm not going to try to eat processed food. I'm going to try to not eat sugar. Yeah. I eat a lot of rice. I eat like, that's where most of my carbon takes rice. Um, maybe some, maybe some potatoes. I don't eat a ton of pasta, but I, you know, depending, um, but a lot of it's just meats, vegetables, you know, rice, um, fruits, like good fats. Like yeah. I just gonna need a balanced diet and then just know roughly what I should eat. And a lot of the times it's based off of how I feel. Um, my biggest issue is I'll go once I get to like start work or whatever, I'll go the whole day without eating yeah. just because I'm busy. And it's like, and the girls are good here because they'll how me like, hey, did you eat lunch today? And I'm like, no. Yeah. So like even today's been a bad eating day for me just because you're just running around as I'm sure you are too. Yeah. Just boom, 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 boom. And like sit down for like 10, 20 minutes to eat is yeah. tough. Yeah. Um, you just got to find what works for you. Last thing I wanted to, uh, touch base on was you, do you still do a lot of keynotes? Kind of speak because we had we had I mean yeah. some of these said you did quite a bit of, and some of these are like chiropractic association of Australia the yeah. European chiropractic union world chiropractic congress yep so I'm assuming again from the chiropractic industry these are pretty big events yeah yeah so to be talking at this you must be talking to I mean quite a few people <laughs> yeah it depends think. some of them are smaller but 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 a lot of them like I did probably my most intimidating I, I remember it like it was yesterday was a few years ago in Guadalajara Mexico. Mm-hmm. Where they were having the Pan American Games, um, which is basically all of you know Central America, North America, like a little mini Olympics they do, 
And a few months prior to the actual games, they did what they called their sports medicine congress. So that was all the 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 teams, the medical teams from all these countries came together for their own little weekend seminar. And um, yeah, they asked me to do a an hour keynote on my experience with the Paralympic Games, meaning and basically I put together from scratch this talk that was medical concerns and unique kind of challenges working with these athletes and some of the unique medical stuff that come about with people that yeah. have uh, spinal cord injury. And uh, so I get in. Now, as anyone who fears public speaking, I'd been doing it for a little while at that point, not nearly. I'd be much more comfortable today than I was you know, six, seven years ago. So I go into this room, and I like to know who I'm speaking to, who's in the crowd. I'm like meticulous with that. I want to know roughly the size. What are, are they medical doctors? Are they chiros? Are they PT? The, no one was giving any information. English was not great, you know, with some of the, the, the people that were organizing. And I, I don't speak any Spanish other than a few words. And so I walk into the room and it was 500 people, 80, probably 489 of them were medical doctors. So I am talking to a room of international MDs. I'm this little lowly, you know, Cairo from Plattsburgh, New York, who, uh, doing the talk also for the first time, which is always interesting. Um, for an hour now to add to the nervousness I'm given they're they're miking me up offside before they introduce me and all they said is you've got to really speak slower than normal because we have translators so they had everyone that didn't speak English had a headset and they were doing Spanish translations to people well I had always pictured you know they would be in the back in like a booth well, so I start talking, and don't they've got the tra- they have the translator, basically stage right, in kind of an open booth. It was it kind of had plastic. I could hear them oh, talking oh. constantly out of my right ear as oh. I'm kind of presenting. <laughs> so they said we're going to go for thirty minutes. We're going to take a ten minute break. Let people go see the vendors. So halfway through, and they had warned me. They said you have to be careful. Don't talk in kind of like slang euphemisms that that you know america that just, i would they, appreciate yeah. that aren't going to translate li- literally oh okay because it just won't make sense and so i was really conscious of that it was a new talk i was intimidated by the crowd i come up at the 30 minute mark on the break and the, i go how am i doing am i doing the guys like you gotta just slow it. and i thought i was cr- like a turtle you yeah. know crawling in my and he goes you gotta slow it down more and he goes and watch the catchphrase i'm like what are you talking like I, I didn't think he's he said twice you said I like to think outside the box. Now that's a saying we'd say a yeah. hundred times without even, and clearly I did say it a couple of, and he said, they're trying to translate the concept of think outside the box into Spanish and it does not translate. <laughs> and so you're going to confuse people. So anyway, it ended up going well. I survived. I got a few really good comments after that made me kind of, and that kind of vaulted me into searching out, doing it a little more regularly and oh. got me into the continuing ad. But yeah, it's given me, it's a cool experience. I've gotten to travel. I've been to Australia now, I think four times, that's cool. uh, four separate trips. And that's that's been great. Um, always looking, hopefully this whole COVID stuff, I've kind of, 2020s, I've mentally kind of put it as a wash for travel. Um, I'm hoping maybe a few things toward the end of the year, but vacation wise, I'm just planning on 2021. I've, I'd like to add to my country list. So so you, you must have some good uh, flyer rewards, flyer miles. Uh, you know, you'd think so, but I, they make it so hard now. Do they? It, it just is. Yeah. Are, are you I like? Mean, are you like a one? A one? Uh, like 
one brand or one no brand that's airline. The, no that's the problem so if i'm traveling for rock tape 25 times a year it's kind of like hey they don't mind if you pay a few bucks extra but don't i don't want to see you spending you know 1200 bucks for a flight from burlington to philly either you know so you kind of have to go with whatever flight is given the best price yeah um and you're when you're flying to so many different cities it's always different airlines, you know, different hubs depending on where you're going. So, and from a travel perspective, are you a pretty minimal minimalist travel guy? I, I can't even. You, you have no idea. It's how I, how I pride I, myself on the minimalism. I was gonna say, guys that travel a lot, I've heard that it's just like you probably have like a bag that can fit like under your seat, and that's about it. Like a little bag. Uh, let me put it this way: I went, I once had. It wasn't by choice, but I once had to fly to New Zealand from. I was living in Minnesota at the time. I flew to I flew from Minneapolis to New Zealand door to door in five days. I was I was only on the ground in New Zealand for seventy two hours. I went with a, a, a literally like a school backpack for three days to New Zealand. The lady thought I was nuts, the stewardess, when I boarded. She goes, "Wait, is that all you have?" And I said, "There's a couple of rolled up suits, and that was it." Yeah. So yeah, now the best. But besides that, what I'm most proud of is turning my wife into someone who never traveled. Now she's looks she's into it. But the big sell, especially, you know, stereotypically, women sometimes struggle a little bit more with, yep. uh, yeah, they got more to carry. I'll give them that. We just went last summer for basically, it ended up being like 16 days to Vietnam. Really? Probably the favorite country I've ever been. It's, it's a phenomenal trip. And we went for 15 or 16 days with each just a backpack. Wow. A 30 liter, not this huge, like, yeah. you know, Appalachian Trail, a 30 liter backpack, one for me, one for my wife for a 15 day trip. How many shoes did you bring? Just one pair? Uh, one. Was I, that also like running shoe? And oh, no, no. Pair? I'm sorry. Take it back. I wore my running sneakers yep. on the plane and then my trusted Chaco sandals yep. that I've had uh, two of these in 25 years. Uh, really? It's all I wear in the summer. Um, so yeah, paired it so I could get a workout in and then just had the sandals strapped to the outside. So two pairs for two weeks, that's, laundry one time. That's great. Just lots of black shirts and, uh, uh, shorts, man. You know, it's great. So. I was going to say the the, tra- the traveling tips alone are probably, are probably worth uh, reaching out for you. You'll know, right? It is. <laughs> I'm a bit of, I've, I've had several patients that have offered to pay to find, cheap trip so i suppose if anybody wants to reach out maybe i if i get the demand maybe i'll start a business up Tra- so. travel agency. travel hacking yeah. there you go not a good year to start but no. maybe 2021 it's coming out there you go all right john i appreciate you coming on um if you guys uh, actually if anybody wants to find you um how can they find you um or, a couple or, different or ways needs? yeah if it's if it's clinic related if you're injured want to con- even if you're not injured i get a lot of people just want a kind of consultation and say hey can you i've always you know when i start running more this bothers me or my hip bothers me or looking to improve performance, can you check me out? You can go to my website, which is www.theidealathlete.com. That's just the ideal athlete, all one word. And you can see book now buttons. I book everything all online. It's another cool thing that my office does all mm-hmm. online booking. Um, if you're just casual, want to reach out to me, you can probably best bets to go through Instagram, which is just John underscore Mulholland, J-O-N underscore M-U-L-H-O-L-L-A-N-D. Perfect. All right, John, I appreciate it. Um, That is episode 75 of the Galen Trombley Show. Cool, bud. Thanks for listening to the Galen Trombley Show. If you want to reach me, you can go on Facebook at Galen Trombley, on Instagram at Galen Trombley, and on YouTube at Galen Trombley. The spelling, G-A-E-L-A-N-T-R-O-M-B-L-E-Y.